With me in the studio today is the Honorable Matthew J. Perry, Jr., Federal District Judge in the state of South Carolina. And we're going to talk a little bit about growing up in South Carolina and take a look at his life and career and how South Carolina has changed from pre-World War II to the present. First of all, Your Honor, welcome to the Journal. Thank you. We've had a number of your contemporaries on in the last few weeks, and we've talked about growing up in South Carolina. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up in Columbia before World War II? Well, there is, of course, a great deal of difference, as uh, I'm sure all of your listeners undoubtedly know. I was born in 1921, and I um, grew up in Columbia with the exception that for a short time, my father, who was a World War I veteran, was hospitalized in Tuskegee, Alabama. So my mother took me, my brother and sister, down to uh, Tuskegee, Alabama, where we lived for a period. I'm, uh, memory does not serve me mm-hmm. concerning exact time. It, it might have been as much as two years. Yeah. And, and uh, me, for our listeners, the reason he was there is because of segregated hospitals. That is correct. Even for that our veterans. correct, even for our veterans. I remember that when I was in Tuskegee as a, a child, really, I was there when the 29 crash occurred. Mm-hmm. Also, somewhere about that time, I remember the news came out that several young men had been arrested on um, a freight train in the case that later became popularly known as the Scottsboro yes. Boys case. Yes, a, a, a case which uh, my colleague Dan Carter has written so movingly about the Scottsboro trial. Absolutely. Uh, we returned to Columbia, uh, where I uh, re-entered the elementary school during my last year in elementary school before I went down to Booker, Washington. Was that in Sa- at Saxon School? No, that was the old Waverly Elementary School. Okay. At first, of course, uh, as a child, uh, you know, I was l- l- confined mm-hmm. to the, the black section of Columbia. I had no interaction. I uh, did not immediately uh, know how um, restrictive it was in racial terms. My mother insisted that I, my brother and sister, go to school, even at a point in time at which some of my contemporaries were dropping out of school to get employment. My mother insisted that I remain in school, even though she was a young widow. By the way, my father died when I was 12 years old. I was then the oldest of three children, and it must have been quite difficult for her. Uh, and I wanted to stop and go to work. But she insisted that I go to school. And you graduated from Booker Washington High School. I did, in 1939. And did you go in the service then, or did you go to, to South Carolina State? I enrolled at South Carolina State. I, I uh, stayed there for over two years uh, before I was drafted into the military service during World War II. You were in, in the European theater. Yes, I was. And uh, you ended up at Bastogne. Mm-hmm. I did. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, we were, see, we were, we were quartermaster troops. Mm-hmm. 
We, uh, see, I think that's interesting because in World War One, whether your dad was in the 371st or not, yes. uh, African-Americans were put into combat units. That's in, correct. In World War II, that you were put in support units. African-Americans were mostly put in support units. At least mine was. Transportation, yes. quartermaster, exactly. supply. That's uh, right. When um, we were assigned to the 3rd Army under General Patton, when the breakthrough at uh, Bastogne occurred, why... Um, General Patton ordered all all troops from the within the immediate environ to suit up and get into Bastogne. Mm-hmm. And you got there during the thick of the fight, or right after? Or right after the right thick of the fight, mm-hmm. but it was uh, still, still quite going. a quite a terrible area. All right, after the war, you're you're demobilized. Um, you come back to to South Carolina, and you you re-enroll in SC State and graduate. That's correct. I was discharged in in January 1946. And I was, um, I had to go back to school to complete my undergraduate schooling, but I was waiting until the fall semester uh, at the beginning of the 46-47 school year. At some point during the spring, two cases came for trial here in the federal court in Columbia. And I um, and one or two of my friends went up to the courthouse to witness the trial. I might add that by that time, I had decided on my career choice. I had decided that I was going to study law. And so the fact that these two very important trials were going to occur uh, excited my interest, and I went to hear them. And what were these two cases? One of them was the case of Elmore versus Rice. Uh, That case is one in which uh, the plaintiff... Uh, George Elmore, uh, representing himself, it was a class action in which he and others similarly situated were seeking the right to vote in the the primary election, which was then run by the Democratic Party as an all-white party. It was operated as a private club, by the way. Yes. It had been not a private club until the case in Texas and then South Carolina in one week the General Assembly repealed 140-some-odd laws to make sure, this was under Governor Olin D. Johnston, That's to correct. make sure that the Democratic primary could remain basically all white. If you were an African-American who could prove that your grandfather had voted or father had voted for Wade Hampton and it was attested to by X number of white voters, then you might be allowed to vote. Yes. Now, of course, uh, before... I was drafted into the military service. I uh, was enlisted and became a young Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, bear in mind now, that was the only realistic opportunity I had to participate in the political process at the time. Well, now, see, today, that shocks people that almost all Republicans in South Carolina prior to World War II or even up in, into the late 1940s, with a few exceptions of some very, very white conservative businessmen, the party was overwhelmingly African-American. Exactly. Uh, Because this goes back to the Civil War, Reconstruction, the party of Lincoln, and the freeing of the slaves. Yes. This trial brings a a favorite character of yours into play, Judge Waitis Waring. Yes. By the way, Judge Waring presided over both of those trials back to back. And when he ruled against the state, uh, he said that the sky would not fall as South Carolina rejoined the Union. Exactly. Was that decision a shock to you, that a white South Carolina judge would say something like that? I guess I was not then aware of the reluctance of 
many um, judges in the South to rule as courageously mm -hmm. as Judge Waring did. Mm -hmm. All right, so what was the second trial? The second trial was one in which a young black American had sued to enter the University of South Carolina's law school. Okay. Uh, he had applied to the law school, was refused because of his race, and so he sued um, in an effort at getting the university enjoined from refusing to admit uh, uh, African Americans. I mean, didn't South Carolina supposedly give lip service to separate but equal? Oh, as a, matter, as a matter of fact, that was the law of South Carolina. But, but there was no opportunity for African-Americans to go to law school, so there was no even paper equality. Well, at the time, of course, South Carolina belonged to the Southern Regional Council that uh, had a program. I think it was the Southern Regional Council. And, of course, uh, if you were a young African-American wanting to pursue a course of study at the University of South Carolina or at some other school that was not offered at South Carolina State College, then South Carolina would uh, give you financial assistance to leave the state and pursue that course of study in a school outside of South Carolina. Now, your wife did that, did she not? She did. My wife pursued a master's degree at Columbia University under that program. Paid for by the state of South Carolina. That's correct. Because they did not want her to come to a master's degree program at education at the University of South that's, Carolina. That's correct, yes. Okay. All right. Now, that, that trial had a particular personal bearing on you. It did. It did. The lawyers in that case were from the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Mm -hmm. They were headed by Thurgood Marshall, mm -hmm. later to become a Supreme Court justice, and, of course, uh, uh, other lawyers included Robert Carter. He, too, became a United States district judge. And um, as an aside, uh, uh, I went to New York uh, two weeks ago and spoke at the uh, New York Hilton uh, on a program honoring Judge Robert Carter. Oh. Nice because way. he was one of the lawyers yes. who, who argued later in the Supreme Court in the Brown versus Board of Education uh, cases. But did you have any idea then, watching Thurgood Marshall argue that case, that at one time in the not-too-distant future that you and he would be colleagues? Did, did you ever dream that that would occur? I did not. I did not. But let me say I was, I was uh, impressed. Uh, I was mesmerized by the, the brilliance of the man, by his articulate... Uh, advocacy, and um, by his great presence. And what was the fallout from that second case about the, the young man trying to go to law school? Uh, Judge Waring decided that case in accordance with the law as it then existed uh, and had been declared by ordering that the University of South Carolina, that in the larger sense, the state of South Carolina, either... Uh, admit John Wrighton and others similarly situated to its state-supported university's law school or provide for him and others similarly situated a separate but equal education at some other uh, institution within the state, and rather so, than, of course, mm -hmm. requiring uh, such persons to leave the state. And, and so that is how a law school was established at South Carolina State. Precisely. 
it's interesting. Um, Dean Prince, who was the dean of the law school here, at one point later on was called to testify before a Senate committee. And uh, Attorney Gus Graydon here told me this story because he was there, that that Dean Prince was quizzed as to why it was more so much more expensive for a pupil to train uh, students at SC State as it was at USC. And his comment was, gentlemen, the price of prejudice is very high. In fact, I was present in the courtroom when that cross-examination uh, when, when, he, when he testified and when he was cross-examined by Thurgood Marshall in one of the classic uh, displays of cross-examination that I'd seen. Well, Dean Prince was, was quite a character in his own, but telling the senior senators of this state that basically because they wanted separate but equal, it was going to cost them money. Exactly, exactly. Okay. In those days, taking the bar exam? Prior to the year of my graduation in 1951, if you had graduated from a law school in South Carolina, you didn't have to take the bar examination. Uh, you were admitted under what was then known and what is still known as the diploma privilege. Hmm. Now, South Carolina decided, the bar officials decided, that uh, they ought to begin administering the examination to all new uh, entrants into the South Carolina system, and they just chose to do it the year I graduated. <laughs> I tell young lawyers who uh, have come before the bar since then that they have me to thank <laughs> for their having to take the bar examination. Now, of course, uh, let me hasten to say that the officials proclaimed that they had been intending to do this for many, many years. Well, was the bar exam colorblind, or did you have to when you take the bar, there's no way to, to know who, who does the paper. I don't know whether that is true or not. I have the sense that everyone present knew I was there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in terms of your, your paper that... that yeah. You, you mean, did my examination papers have my name on it? Yeah. And that kind of thing. Honestly, I cannot today remember. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that there was uh, an effort at... Uh, Particular scrutiny, shall we say? <laughs> to be kind about it? <laughs> uh, to be kind about it. I suppose so. Okay. Yes. But you passed the bar. Yes. Now, was this the incident where you went with the judge? The judge was surprised that you were an African-American, or was that in another? No, that was, <laughs> that was another case some, not, not too long thereafter. <laughs> I think our listeners would enjoy hearing that. <laughs> I know you've told me that anecdote before, but I, yes. I, I think it's well worth sharing it with our all listeners. All right. Very good. Well, all right. I'm still in Spartanburg. By the way, I stayed in Spartanburg for 10 years, from 1951 until 1961. And it was about halfway uh, through that period that a lady in Spartanburg came and employed me to handle a matter for her against her husband, who uh, was a resident of another county. It was a low country county. It was, that, that's correct. It was a low... <laughs> <laughs> because I think that makes the story even better. <laughs> yes, yes. And so the law of South Carolina is if, if one South Carolina citizen is suing another South Carolina citizen, you've got to sue that person in the county where that person resides. So I instituted the suit. By the way, it was a domestic suit, a divorce suit. Under the law, you had to wait a certain number of days before the case was ready for hearing. So when the time came, I saw the resident circuit judge from, from that area who happened to have been up in Spartanburg, as judges did at that time, rotating around the state. And I mentioned to him that I had this matter that I wanted to bring to trial, and I asked if he would give me a hearing. Mm -hmm. He said to me, no, I won't 
hear you myself, but I'll refer it to the master in equity mm -hmm. who happened also to have been the probate judge. Mm -hmm. He was the probate judge ex officio master in equity. Mm -hmm. a master in equity, of course, is a, a lower court judge mm -hmm. designated to try matters arising in equity that are referred to that judge by the, the circuit judge. Mm -hmm. And so he did sign such an order, and then I wrote the master in equity and mentioned to him that the matter had been assigned to him and asked if I could have a hearing. And hearing nothing from him immediately, I made a telephone call. Now, of course, upon reflection, he couldn't look at my, my letter. It was on printed stationery. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing about my letter that suggested who I was. I was not then well known. Mm -hmm. uh, that would not have been possible after a few years because I'd become very well known around the state. Mm -hmm. But now I was not a well-known person. So he had no way of knowing who I was. And, and finally, I made a long-distance telephone call to him. And I understand from those with whom I have conversed that it is not immediately apparent <laughs> who one is speaking to on the telephone. Mm -hmm. So he gave me the hearing date. He was very cordial, mm -hmm. and uh, he uh, indicated that when I arrived for the hearing that he would take me to lunch. Mm -hmm. He would be glad to see me. Well, on the day in question, I did indeed travel to the Low State County, and I presented myself. I went into the, um, the office, and uh, it was a small office. Uh, there were two people there. I later learned that the, the lady at the other desk was his wife, and I presented myself to her, and I asked to speak with the judge by name. She pointed to him. He was sitting over there at another table in, in a distant part of the same room. He had on his hat, a uh, straw hat, had a cigar in his mouth. Uh, uh, it had no fire on it. it. It wasn't a lit cigar. It was down to about, I would say, less than a one-third length, maybe even a quarter length. As if, you know, some people just chew on their right. cigars. And so um, he was had his head down working at some papers, and I went over and stood in front of him. And he let me stand there for a moment. And after a while, he looked up and said, yeah, what what you want? Mm -hmm. And so I said to him, I said, well, Your Honor, I'm, I'm Matthew Perry of Spartanburg. I'm here for the hearing that you've established. Well, the man swallowed the cigar. <laughs> I mean, he actually, he actually <laughs> swallowed the cigar. Well, he began to, to you know, to gag and to <laughs> everything. And so his wife uh, came over to him and she helped him up and she began patting him on the back and she walked him into an adjoining room. And of course, I stood there and uh, I overheard her as she continued and she worked on him and apparently he managed to cough the cigar up. <laughs> <laughs> and he came out uh, having cleared his throat, and, of course, uh, the hearing went forward. Uh, there was, uh, by the way, no mention of lunch. <laughs> I was going to ask. That. <laughs> he said he did not get the lunch. The late, great Judge Matthew J. Perry. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast. This is our book club weekly installment session number six on 
Essie Mae Washington Williams, Dear Senator. Today's date, Thursday, April 21, 2022. So I have been told, Dear Senator, we're picking up Chapter 6. Uh, so we heard a snippet last week. In fact, when we concluded last week, Essie Mae was upset uh, about her father marrying a 21-year-old white woman only about a year older than Essie Mae herself at the time, leaving his, uh, excuse me, leaving Carrie Butler, her sick mother, <laughs> totally forgetting about her, no help at all, kicked to the curb. Got me a young, spry white woman that he'd been courting since she was 15. Uh, the only thing that I'll say, I had to play that, uh, boy, I didn't have to, but I mean, wow, I felt compelled. And particularly because the late Judge Perry, even in his late years, retained that mellow, soothing baritone that she described last week. I thought he had so many amazing uh, anecdotes about white supremacy racism. Uh, the only thing that I will add, hey, <laughs> apparently, still in 2022, voice tone is not reliable with regarding racial classification. With that, we will get to the memoir, Context of White Supremacy. Dear Senator S.E. May Washington Williams, audio segment one. Mona Lisa. I didn't go home that summer vacation. I couldn't face either of my mothers with the news of my father's transformation into the pitchfork of the 20th century. Perhaps I might have brought them some comfort beat by being there to commiserate with them about how he had betrayed us. But I wasn't sure how much good that would do. I was hoping they weren't aware of his change. This was before every home had television. Theirs didn't. And there was some chance Strom Thurmond's antics weren't on the northern radar. After all, when I lived in New York, the only way I could find out about South Carolina was to go to the out-of-state newsstand at Times Square. Pennsylvania was far less likely to follow this carnival show in Dixie. Besides, I had too much rage to see company of my misery. I wanted to forget. So, I got married. Julius Williams had been steadily pursuing me and I finally got over my distrust of all men and realized this man was special. But we had to keep it a secret. Neither of us had any money, and we needed to continue living in the college dormitories, which married students obviously couldn't do. It was one more secret I had to keep. And for years I continued to keep Strom Thurmond a secret from Julius. Although my father had never once ordered me to keep my mouth shut about him, I was simply conditioned to be discreet. I was worried that if Julius knew, it could somehow be held against him, that the Ku Klux Klan might hurt him, or something dreadful like that. So I kept my history and my anger to myself. That summer, we gave ourselves an extended honeymoon by finding jobs at a ritzy white resort in Hendersonville, North Carolina, in the cool and lovely Blue Ridge Mountains. We actually got married there and shared a room. We assumed the resort would never report us to State College, this was before computers and other background checks. Besides, we were just menials. Julius worked as a waiter in the fancy dining room. All the waiters at this resort were black. 
That was the Southern style. I guess it reminded the guests of the good old days before the Civil War. As the song went, old times there are not forgotten. I worked as a babysitter for assorted families so they could go dancing at night. I spent a lot of time taking care of the young son of the two alcoholic owners of the resort. He was a wise guy who would always stop me when I tried to tell him a fairy tale or some bedtime story. I heard that one before. That's not the way it goes. And then he'd tell it his way. We got along well and became good friends. It made me wonder at what stage in life Southern whites, if not many others, started thinking of blacks as other. It was a romantic summer. Julius and I would hike in the woods, swim in mountain streams, live the outdoor healthy life. My father would have been proud of me, but I didn't care what he thought anymore. We'd watch Jackie Robinson, the first black major leaguer, play for the Dodgers, or we'd laugh at Uncle Milton Burrow on one of the resort's several television sets, which were still quite the luxury at the time. One day, off we went into Hendersonville and sat in the balcony to watch Key Largo. Everyone was talking about the romance of Humphrey Bogart, who was like my father, well over two decades older than his wife, Lauren Bacall. Nobody seemed to mind about them. They were the fabulous screen couple of the time. Likewise, nobody seemed to mind about Strom Thurmond and his very young wife. They too were considered the dream couple of politics, certainly in the South. Here he could do no wrong, not among white people. My father never ceased to amaze me. At the resort, Julius liked to watch the news on the television. It was there that I nearly fell out of my chair to learn that Governor Thurman was now running to become President Thurman. His endless ant attacks on President Truman had made him so popular below the Mason-Dixon line that a new party, the state's rights party, had been formed by disaffected Democratic leaders. They became known as the Dixiecrats. They had a raucous convention in Birmingham, Alabama, where the Delicats chanted nigger, waved Confederate flags, and burned Truman in effigy. They held up pictures of Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis next to the pictures of my father. They wore the dreaded red shirts that the Southerners wore when they drove the Reconstruction troops out in a reign of terror and lynching. Then they nominated as their standard-bearer my father, who was considered the great white hope of the South at the time. The stations played over and over a televised speech he had given, angrily shaking his fist and pointing his fingers, declaiming, almost screaming, On the question of social intermingling of the races, our people draw the line. All the lies of Washington and all the bayonets of the army cannot force the Negro race into our theaters, our swimming pools, our schools, our churches, our homes. I don't like that man, my new husband said, turning off the set in disgust. I fought Hitler to end up with that. What's the difference? I could see the pain and venom in Julius's eyes. I prayed he couldn't see the fear and shame in mine. I didn't want to keep any secrets from my new husband, but this one was way outside the normal secret category. My father was coming across as an enemy of the people, my people, my husband's people. Julius was sensitive about a lot of things, not the least of which was human rights, civil rights, and civil wrongs. I knew he wouldn't have expected me to be my father's keeper, yet by the same token he might not have wanted me to keep Sean Thurman in my life, 
which was now our life. He might have expected me to denounce the white supremacist, if not expose him. I wasn't sure, but I was terrified of taking the chance of having to choose between my father and my husband. I sensed that there was a good chance that if Julius had suspected I had that man's blood in my veins, he might have mooted the whole issue by leaving me right then and there. So I did what I had always done. I kept my mouth shut hoping against all reality that the issue would somehow miraculously disappear and I could go on and enjoy the new happiness of married life. It would hardly go away. Strom Thurmond was soon on the cover of Time. I was shocked that he would be dignified by that prestigious magazine. Not only was the nation taking him seriously, newspapers and radio and television commentators were saying that the Dixiecrats had a chance to win the election. The logic went like this. Harry Truman could not win the presidency without the South. The Dixiecrats, by winning the South, could throw what promised to be a very close election into a three-way race in which no party had a majority. The election would then have to be decided in the House of Representatives, where the southern states numbered 11 of the 48 votes, with many persuasive and powerful politicians who, if Dewey and Truman were stalemated, might just be able to swing the election to my father as the compromise candidate. Jean Crouch Thurmond was interviewed at length about how she would change the White House if she were First Lady. She promised that she would serve grits there. When we returned to state in September, the campus was a hotbed of gossip and innuendo about the president's daughter. Reporters, white reporters from all over the country, as well as journalists from Ebony Magazine, were snooping around. Lizzie Mae Thompson bore the brunt of the suspicions, but she never pointed a finger at anyone else, particularly me. I was worried that our college president, who had served as a go-between for my father and me, might now put two and two together and blow the whistle. I was aware that the president, as well as other academics, felt deceived and abandoned by their friend, the progressive governor. But as I have said, state was a very proper, dignified place, and they were not the types to sacrifice a student to get even, even with a traitor. Despite the gossip and the press attention, despite the horrible words our governor was spouting every day, the student body remained largely apolitical, if not apathetic. Julius and I decided to move off campus because we wanted so much to be together, and I found a place with rent low enough that we could afford it, I have a friend, Catherine Dawkins, who was married to a man, Lamar Dawkins. They own Lamar's restaurant, a favorite hangout of South Carolina State University students. A delicious fried chicken lunch was only 52 cents. In addition to providing access to good food, Catherine was a beauty and a tennis star. She and Lamar were renting a big house from a white woman on Oak Street near the school, and they sublet a room to Julius and me. It wasn't a great room, just a bed they had put in the large kitchen, which they rarely used because they had the restaurant. However, it was fine for us, our own blue heaven, as the song went. The daughter of a successful building contractor in Columbia, who had worked on the state house there, Catherine must have had a lot of white forebears because, after Lizzie Mae Thompson, she was one of the lightest-skinned girls on campus and considered one of the prettiest. She used to take me to a white laundry to do our clothes, and no one said a word. 
One day I tried going there myself, however, and the white proprietress asked me to leave. I was light, but not light enough. I never went back, even with Catherine. I knew my place, though it would have given me the greatest spiteful pleasure to tell that laundress that my governor father was running for president. I have no doubt he was one of her heroes. Julius had changed his career plans from medical school to law school. With no money and given our desire to start a family, the medical route seemed to have an endless horizon, with the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow too far away. State had just started its own law school, under federal orders enforcing the separate but equal Supreme Court ruling. Rather than admit blacks to the sacred precincts of the University of South Carolina Law School, the state founded and funded a separate, if hardly equal, law school at Orangeburg. Julius was in the first class. There was only one other student, so he knew he'd be getting plenty of attention. The presidential race had galvanized, if not radicalized, my husband. He vowed to use his law degree to try to correct the injustices advocated by my father. Moving off campus gave me an extra sense of privacy and intimacy with my new partner in life. Now that he was going to be a lawyer, I sensed I was on a collision course with that other lawyer in my family, my father. It seemed inevitably hopeless to try to keep my secret from him, and having our own place, tiny as it was, away from the college and all the Snoopy reporters milling around, I felt less insecure about re revealing the truth of my identity to him than I had before. Our love had only deepened and solidified, giving me a self-confidence I had heretofore lacked. I also had a deep need to share my secret with someone, and who better if not my husband? Even though he stood opposite from my father on just about every issue imaginable. Still, the decision was anything but easy. I was filled with trepidation when I approached him late one night after dinner, and after we were both exhausted from studying. I invited him out onto the porch under a crystal clear Carolina sky with a full harvest moon. It was fall, but it was still balmy outside. We talked about our homework for a while. We both loved studying, and our books were among our strongest bonds. Then I segued into the combat zone. It isn't Lizzie Mae Thompson, I said. Julius knew exactly what I was talking about. So what's your theory? Everybody's got one. Guessing who was the governor's daughter was the favorite game on campus that fall. It's not Lizzie, I said. It's me. Julius started laughing. I let him laugh a while. When I didn't join him, he stopped. He just looked at me. You are joking, he said. And then his statement lost its conviction and became a question. Aren't you? I just looked back at him and gave him a smile, a loving smile. Will you hate me? I wondered aloud, praying I already knew the answer. He put a reassuring arm around me. The only one who hates is that one. Why are you fooling with me? I'm not fooling, I said, in the lowest voice I had, not wanting to alert Catherine and Lamar, who were sleeping. And then I told him the whole story. I guess I'm not going to sleep too much tonight, Julius said when I finished. Is this going to give you nightmares? I asked him. It's just crazy. It's hard to sink in. Do you hate me? I asked him again. Honey, I love you. Julius cradled me in his strong, warm arms. Then he asked me the hardest question of all. But do you love him? He's my father. Is that a yes or a no? 
You lawyer, I tried to tease him, to make light of it all. But there was nothing light in Julius's countenance except the light of the moon, which illuminated all his concerns. Do you really think he loves you? he asked me. He's been helping me. He doesn't have to. Is that a yes or no? I wish we could all love each other, I blurted out. I wish you could teach him how, Julius said. Then you wouldn't be some then you would be some teacher. You'd win the Nobel Prize. Try to understand, I entreated my husband. I'll never understand him, he said. I'll always love you. He kissed me and we went inside. But we rarely, if ever, spoke about my father. As I told Julius, I wasn't even sure when I'd ever see him again. It wasn't as if it had been often, a few times in many years. He'd disappeared before, and he'd disappear now. And if he became president, I tried to joke, I doubted that he'd invite us to the White House. That's why they call it that, Julius replied with a knowing chuckle. He seemed to accept that Strom Thurmond was my history, but that he, Julius, was my life and my future. Nor did Julius demand or suggest I go public with this history, much as it might have destroyed the man who was widely seen as the enemy of our people. He seemed willing to let the past be just that, bygones be bygones. And again, I saw the time-honored value of keeping my mouth shut. Strom Thurmond was one topic that could only get me into trouble. My world was further turned upside down late in October when I got an emergency call for Mary in Coatesville. My mother was very ill. In a hospital, could I come home? Mary wouldn't have asked me unless the situation was grave. I took the next train from Columbia and sat up all night in that dreadful, smoky coach. I didn't want Julius to come. I hadn't told anyone we had gotten married. That would create its own set of logistic and diplomacy issues, none of which I was prepared to deal with. This was no time for him to meet the family. Most of the way, I cried for my mother. I had never really gotten to know her to spend the time with her I had wanted. I would have loved for her to have seen me in New York. I would have loved to have shown her State College and how I was fulfilling her dream of getting a higher education. I would have loved for my father to have been able to love her publicly. I prayed she would get better so that some of my wishes, fantasies, whatever, might come true. I first went to Coatesville. Mary told me my mother was in the public hospital in Philadelphia, where she had been placed in the poverty ward. Her kidneys were failing. She had gotten sick a month before, as she had intermittently for the last few years, which was why she had been looking so tired and drawn. She had refused to complain. This time, Mary told me, the doctors had little hope. It was end-stage renal failure. There was no dialysis then, or at least any that my mother could afford. I told Mary that I had gotten married. She broke down, hurt that I didn't allow her to throw me a big wedding. I recall Ethel Merman and Annie Get Your Gun singing, I want a wedding in a big church, with champagne and caviar. I want a wedding like the Vanderbilts have, a wedding that's big, not small. I didn't care about weddings. I was married and in love. While Mary said... Willie, Mary said, had been placed with a family who lived nearby. He was almost finished with high school. Mary said he was ready to go out on his own. He would be all right. 
Mary also told me that the man Carrie had been living with had left her. My mother didn't deserve to die all alone. I took the next train to Philadelphia. I bought a bouquet of flowers at the station and took a cab over to the hospital, a large municipal facility. The white nurse on the ward was a cr as cruel as a human could be. She'll never be able to enjoy those flowers, the nurse said. I found my way to my mother's bed on the ward. She looked terrible. She was gasping, her eyes bulging from her face in a mask of terror and pain. She was so young, far too young to be this way, yet she was now as frail as an old woman. Each breath seemed as if it might be her last. I think she recognized me, but I couldn't be sure. I tried not to fall apart. I told her how much I loved her. I told her about my marriage, about Julius, how wonderful he was. I told her about state, about how well I was doing, how she was my inspiration for learning, for being. I told her Julius and I were trying to start a family to give her her first grandchild. I did not mention my father. I couldn't. Carrie's eyes closed. Her gasping continued. I sat there for two hours by her bed, just holding her hand, stroking her brow. She kept breathing badly, but she didn't open her eyes again. Finally, visiting hours ended. The mean nurse told me I had to move on. I handed my mother's flowers to an elderly black woman in the bed across from her. The woman smiled with enormous gratitude. I took the night train back to Coatesville. Mary and I were about to return together the next morning when we got the call that my mother had passed away. She was 38. We had her funeral at Mary's Baptist Church rather than Carrie's Pentecostal one. There was no shouting or testifying, only gentle hymns and many tears. I went to the open casket and took one last look at my mother. I had thought I would have a lifetime with her to make up for our lost time and my childhood spent without her. Now she was lost forever, but I would never forget her. A week after I lost my mother, my father lost the presidency. He lost by a lot. He and his Dixiecrats carried only four states, South Carolina and the Deep South, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. It did not speak well for South Carolina to join the most backward, most racist, most violent states in the nation. The image of the state as progressive was sacrificed on the altar of my father's political ambitions. Still, over a million Americans voted for my father, which was a huge number of people. A lot of Americans, and not only Southerners, had responded to his message of racial hatred. I'm sure he got votes in Coatesville. He would have never gotten mine. Truman won the election in a last-minute upset over Governor Dewey, and as governor, my father went back to politics as usual, urging South Carolinians to close ranks behind the president, against whom, only weeks before, he was nearly threatening to go to war to protect the South's pernicious racial status quo. On a cold, dark day in December, I was studying in the library when I got a message to go to the president's office. I had no idea what he might want, other than to ask me to do some secretarial work, which I had done for that office several times before as part-time employment. Imagine my astonishment to see my father sitting all by himself in that big office. President Whitaker was nowhere to be seen. 
You have to forgive me for being so busy, SMA. He stood up and shook my hand. I wanted to yank it away, but he had taken me completely by surprise. He offered me a seat. I nearly collapsed into the leather chair. I have been looking after you. The president says you've been doing just fine. I understand you've gotten married. That surprised me, too. I had told the school when I moved off campus. I suppose as governor, my father had total access to student records, especially mine. I understand he's an outstanding young man. I started at law school, you know. I wanted him to have a good place to go. Was he trying to bribe me to make amends? Yes, the law school was started during his term, but was he doing it for me? I refused to thank him. Instead, I blurted out, my mother is dead. His normal ebullience was knocked completely out of him. He sat stunned for a long time. What did you say, Esme? Did I hear you? My mother is dead. She died in October. Kidney failure. Oh, he bleated like a wounded animal. Oh. He didn't cry, but tears filled his eyes. For the first time I had seen, the great orator was speechless. After a long pause, he began to talk again. Nobody told me. You were busy, sir. My God, what a terrible thing. I didn't want to give him the satisfaction of telling him how hurt she had been by his dropping her, though I could see he was genuinely moved. There was no satisfaction to be had. She hadn't heard from you. I knew there was a man in her life. I noticed that he didn't say another man, he being the first. You got married, Governor, I boldly said, unafraid for once of being impudent. Not before she... He let his voice trail off. He was implying my mother had taken up with George before he took up with Jean. I had no idea who came first. I realized he might be telling the truth. I declined to press the issue, to argue with a lawyer, a judge. It was possible he sought refuge in Jean Crouch only after it had ceased to be available with Carrie Butler. I tended to doubt it, but it did blunt my implacable hostility enough to prevent me from addressing the outrage of the age difference. Instead, I completely changed the subject. How could you have said all those terrible things? What things? He pretended he had no idea what I was referring to. About Negroes? I used his disdainful term. SMA, there is no man in this country who cares more about the Negro than I do. I think you know that. He stared hard at me. I had heard him, genuinely heard him. He believed what he was saying. Look around here. Look at your college. Look at my programs. I'm doing all that's humanly possible. All this stuff you said about keeping us out of your homes, your churches, your swimming pools. Is that really where you want to go, Essie? A white swimming pool? We build a beautiful pool right here on campus. We can't even go to Edisto Gardens. The vast gardens right outside of Orangeburg were among the most famous in the entire country. Famed for their roses, azaleas, and centuries-old cypress trees. Cypress trees. It was for whites only. That's like coming to New York City and being told we can't go to the Statue of Liberty. There's a big difference between Edisto 
and the Statue of Liberty, SMA. Then Central Park, SMA. Edisto is a private property. The owners can do what they want. Private property is the essence of the American democracy. I know you're an A student in history. I shouldn't have to tell you that. Would you want the government telling you what to do with your property? My father then launched into a defense of his offense against Harry Truman. That's what this campaign was about. That man is like a communist. With the FEPC, Truman's proposed Fair Employment Practices Committee. He wants to tell their employers how to run their businesses. He wants to send agents into every shop, every factory, to make sure Negroes are put there, whether they're qualified or not. That's the way Stalin does it in Russia. Sending his spies everywhere. You don't want the federal government in your life. Then we're all slaves. Do you want that in your country, SMA? I want black people to have jobs. So do I, SMA. That's why I love this school, which gets Negroes qualified. I'm working on a lot of educational reforms. SMA, I'm a school teacher. I believe in education. That's the way to go. We've come a long way. We're going to go a lot further, but it takes time. The backs of the buses, the railway coaches, the colored balconies at the movie shows, it's not fair. It's the South, SMA. The governor spoke with finality. It's the culture here. It's the custom. It's the way we live. I could tell the we didn't include me. You don't go to England and tell them to get rid of the queen and the royalty. That's not fair either, but it's the custom. They got rid of the royalty in Russia, and what do, what do you have? Communism. A police state is no different from Hitler. And neither are you, I wanted to say. What I did say was, Hitler said the Jews were inferior. You said the Negroes, I often use his terms, are inferior. That is completely untrue, SMA. A terrible falsehood. When did I say that? I don't remember. It seemed if, if you don't want them around, white people, then that means they're inferior. Not inferior. Different. Different. Imagine to compare me to Hitler. Not that I haven't heard it in the campaign. I heard everything. But to hear it from you, SMA, you can't change the South. You don't want to, sir. Oh, yes, I do. I'm changing it right now by having you here, getting a fine education, to get you a fine career. There's nothing in this country you won't be able to do, SMA. Nothing at all. Nothing your husband won't be able to do. We can't get served at the counter at Woolworths. Why would you want to? The food's no good. I bet these restaurants right over here are much better. They serve good fresh food. I know they do. You can't get a vegetable at Woolworths. I've never seen spinach, green beans at the five and dime. What do you want, a hot dog that'll kill you? I guess I want the choice, Governor. I think the communists are putting these ideas in colored people's heads, that they're missing something wonderful at Woolworths' luncheonette. You're too intelligent to be taken in by that nonsense, SMA. Much too intelligent. For a moment, I couldn't help being flattered by his backhanded praise. Stand up for what matters, not hot dogs at Woolworths. 
I'm standing up for the Negroes. Ask your president here. He knows what I'm doing. The future of South Carolina depends on the amelioration of the condition of the Negro. I love this state, but give me time. Give me a chance. A lot of Negroes, Negroes here, are hurt by what you said. That's politics, SMA. You're in the heat of a campaign and you get misquoted, taken out of context. Look at the deeds, not the words. They made me sound like I thought lynching was no problem, but you saw that I prosecuted the Willie Earl case. You lost. This is the South, SMA, he kept repeating. The party was called the state's rights party for a reason. The South has had enough problems with the federal government. Reconstruction left terrible scars on this region that still haven't healed. Southerners are ultra-sensitive about Yankee interference, telling them how to live their lives. It'll all work out in time, but change takes time. Imagine, if your husband tried to force you to kiss him, you'd say no, you'd resist. But if he gave, if he gave you some time, let you get to know him, see, you end up married. It all works out. Given his own marriage, my father's choice of analogy was highly unfortunate. It made me extremely uncomfortable. Are you sad that you lost? I again changed the subject. I never expected to win. I never expected to run. It was quite an experience, quite an honor. I was trying to make a point for the South, that the South has to be respected, that there can't be another reconstruction that the federal will can't be imposed. I wasn't against Negroes. I was against Washington. Maybe I spoke too strongly. Maybe I got too passionate. If I did, then I'm sorry. Washington simply was simply using the Negro issue as a wedge. I guarantee I care more about the Negro than Harry Truman. Just look at my record. Study John C. Calhoun, SMA, our greatest South Carolinian. You'll understand exactly what this campaign was about. My father got up to leave. I've got a year of work to catch up on. I promise to be in better touch, he said, but did not invite me to visit him in Columbia or meet his new wife. I'm terribly sorry about your mother, he added, trying hard not to choke up. That is shocking news. He handed me another of his envelope. This is for your marriage. He said and shook my hand. It seemed weaker than his hello greeting. Then he leaned into me and in a near whisper said, I truly cared for that woman. She was a wonderful person, a wonderful woman. I came. Then his voice trailed off into silence. Goodbye, Senator, I said. He reached out to hug me, but this time I simply couldn't let him and left him standing alone in the office. Outside in the twilight, I opened the envelope. It was stuffed with hundred-dollar bills. Benjamin Franklin seemed to be smiling at me again and again. I knew there was no easy way to hide this enormous amount from Julius, who was so principled that he might force me to give it back. Should I give it back myself first, I pondered? Was it right to take money from Strom Thurmond? For all his bluster, for all his racist campaign posturing, I somehow couldn't dislike him the way I wanted to. I'm sure it was the genuine grief he felt, but could not express over my mother. Even though on the surface he had it all, 
high office, a perfect wife, health and wealth and power, I, and only I, knew how deeply conflicted he had to be. I knew he loved my mother. I believe he loved me, after his fashion. It was an unspeakable love, forbidden by the culture and custom of the South, as he called it. The money was speaking it for him. It wasn't hush money. It wasn't a bribe. It was the governor's own outpouring of love and shame and frustration. He had no other way to demonstrate his affection. I thought about Strom Thurmond's own strict, fiercely tough mother and his father and the pitchfork. I understood better that he had an election to try to win, a chance to become president of the United States. I was captivated by the mere notion of being the president's daughter, just as Jean Crouch Thurman was captivated by the notion of serving grits in the White House's first lady. I could understand how he might say just about anything for a chance to win. He was an arch-southerner, to be sure, but he was also only human. He had gotten carried away. I might have as well. Actually, I concluded, Strom Thurmond had already come a long way. I would forgive him, as the Bible says to do, and as my heart told me to do. I wanted to see how much far further he could go. I would hide the money around the house, in jars, under the mattress, and save it for a rainy day. I wouldn't tell Julius. I wanted to let sleeping dogs lie, and this money might have just set the hounds barking. In the public sphere, Strom Thurmond set out right away to try to make amends to the blacks of South Carolina, and, I'm certain, as a gesture to me. He pardoned the black man, facing what seemed an unfair manslaughter conviction. He led a campaign to raise funds for Benedict College, an all-black private school that had fallen on hard times. He declared April 5th Booker T. Washington Day. He gave a strong speech to the right-winged American Legion, warning that he would never tolerate the Ku Klux Klan or any other vigilantism that targeted blacks. He stirred up a hornet's nest of white backlash when he appointed a black Charleston doctor to the state hospital board. This was the very first time in post-Reconstruction history that a black man had been appointed to any public position in South Carolina. Thurman appoints Negro was the headline, and I could just see my father grinning like a Cheshire cat when I read it. Julius, for one, didn't trust anything Strom Thurman did, though he generally avoided the subject, just as I did, to keep the peace. Sometimes with friends, we couldn't avoid the subject of politics. He never tried to pretend that he had warm feelings toward this father-in-law he would in all likelihood never meet. Julius thought the governor's gestures to blacks were nothing but political fence-mending, too little, too late. I wanted to give my father the benefit of the doubt, though I wasn't about to argue with my husband, for fear of seeming like a turncoat. I may have exposed my sympathies, conflicted though they were, while watching Truman's inauguration on the television. Truman and his vice president, Albin Barkley of Kentucky, were on the reviewing stand, waving at all the dignitaries riding by. My father and his wife passed the stand, and my father, trying to bury the hatchet, took off his hat and waved it at the two leaders. Truman icily looked the other way, but when he caught a glimpse of Barkley starting to wave back to the governor, Truman grabbed his VP's arm and held it down. 
I could see how my father was humiliated by the very public snub. That was vicious, I said without censoring myself. That was great, Julius exulted. Bravo, Harry. Uh, Harry Truman, suspected race soldier to Nixon's piano, was a guest on the program. Uh, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly way back in April 2010. Yikes, that's crazy. About 12 years from now, uh, from maybe even today's date, I have to see the exact day he was on. But we did spend time specifically talking about Truman, suspected racist and specific things that he did. All of the presidents, but him specifically. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade. Today has been an awful day for about a billion reasons. Just persevering. Uh, the number is 720 Seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate the email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com <clears throat> we'll uh, share email commentary and see what folks have to say who dialed in on the line as well uh, one thing I will say man oh man judge Perry he has so many stories you know me don't do an audio segment that lasts as long as the one that we heard at the beginning of the broadcast, but I mean, wow. Judge Matthew J. Perry is so impressive. Hopefully we'll hear more about Julius as we continue, but he had better be like the coolest, most constructive, best husband ever because, wow, Matthew G. Perry seems like Judge Matthew J. Perry, excuse me, seems like he would have been the one. That is the one, girl. That is the one. <laughs> like, no disrespect to Julius. I'm sure he's a great fellow, but... Wow. Judge Matthew J. Perry, super impressive. I hope folks enjoyed the anecdotes. Local locals, let's see. Uh, we'll get the phone line first, and then we'll nab uh, some of the folks who uh, wrote in as well. Uh, folks have, uh, get some of the people who dialed in who have email commentary. Let's see. Uh, uh, something odd. How strange. Having some difficulty getting the switchboard to behave correctly, so uh, I might sit today. Everything has been goofy uh, while I figure out, see if I can get the switchboard working correctly. I will get the uh, is it doing it? Oh, okay. The, hey, hey, bravo, bravo. Alright, star six one if you have commentary. We'll get folks in if you have items to share. Uh, let's see. I said I'll go ahead and get some of the written commentary in first. Got me a little discombobulated with the switchboard. Now that's worked out. I'll get some of the written commentary in first. Uh, one of our investors wrote in. This is from Chapter 6. Uh, number 1. Uh, babysitter. Young son. Two alcoholics. Uh, he was a wise guy. Had to tell it his way. Racist white supremacist. Learn early in life who is in charge that was about the anecdote where she was taking care of the little racist children uh, early on uh, make a little bit of money 
Uh, number two, running to become president, Strom Thurmond states, states rights, my bad, make sure I make this a little bigger, easy, there we go. Uh, states rights, party, Dixiecrats, uh, they chanted nigger, waved Confederate flags, uh, had statues of Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, uh, they wore the red shirts. Uh, Thurmond played such an important role in beginning <clears throat> the everything. The separation of the southern part of the Democratic Party and subsequent joining of the Republican Party, like Ben Tillman, someone to keep in mind when reading about the current events in South Carolina. See the Cows Book Club, The Altar of White Supremacy by Donald Matthews. That was just a few days ago. And Mothers of Massive Resistance by Elizabeth Elizabeth. Gillespie McRae. That was last year, 2021. Number three, the presidential race galvanized, if not radicalized, my husband. Again, that word radicalized or radical to describe non-white victims who engage in counter-racist thinking, including old gusty renegade. I hate that one. uh, Currently, I most often see the word used to describe so-called Islamic terrorists and occasionally to describe certain white supremacists. Number four, and gusty. Thurman's visit with Essie May exhibited a myriad of tactics, rationalizations, and tropes which racists, white supremacists, use to rationalize their criminal behavior. States' rights. It takes time. Communism. Outright denial of what he said, then countering with, it's just politics. In the end, he draws Essie into his deception and corruption when she decides to hide the money he gave her from the husband. What did you all think about that? The money he he gives her. He, she doesn't even say she doesn't. She kind of hides it from us, too, because normally she would tell us how much money it is. Because like she said, I think the first time it was 200 bucks or whatever it was. And the next time I think she got 500 because we were doing the inflation and count uh, calculator on it to see like, OK, how much is this to kind of put this in some context? You know how much money it was. She didn't even tell us. She just said it was stuffed with hundreds smiling Benjamin Franklin. So, I mean, this could have been a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, five thousand dollars. And the inflation calculator, I mean, Gee, this could have been like ten thousand dollars in today's money. Who knows? She didn't even tell us, much less uh, Julius. What do we think about that? Her not uh, sharing with him about the money, and then she explains it. Uh, she says that, "Hey, let's look at the meta man. Isn't there an idiot who talks about metaphors all the time?" Hmm. She says, "Let's let the sleeping dogs lie. You know, we don't want to stir things up. So I'll just hide it in jar." What do people think about that? Like, hmm, if we got anybody, any folks here who are in an attempted marriage, if your uh, attempted spouse, whichever, uh, if they got a substantial amount of money. And so we'll have to put this. I think it was like I don't think this was like 300 bucks. I think this might have been he dropped like a thousand dollars like wedding gift type of a thing. And, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I've been out here. Nigga, this and nigga that. Stay away from things. Like I suspect he might have dropped the total G on her, maybe even more than that. Well, he just ran for president. Today's I mean, he easily this could be like somebody dropping ten thousand dollars on you easily, maybe even more than that. Somebody gave you or it's not criminal. So let's make sure same context. So it's not criminal. A family member. Nothing. They weren't out, you know, slanging cocaine or anything like that. A family member gave them legally gave them, let's say, ten thousand (laughs) dollars. I 
can't even get it out with a straight face. And they hide it. They don't tell you. They just hide it, you know, throughout the house. They might even give you some of it. You're getting it. You just don't know that they got it. What do you think about that? What do you think about that in the story? And then if it applied, if you are, if we got anybody here that's in an attempted marriage, your partner, family member gifts them, like we'll say $10,000 and they don't tell you. Is that a brawl? (laughs) Somebody is sleeping on the couch when I find out about this, like, or is that no big deal? Is that, you know, wow, $10,000. That is amazing. Can I get some? Can I I get some? I'm trying to go shopping. Like, is that no big deal? 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Let's see. Folks who dialed in with a hand up. Proceed. May I be heard? Uh, 2262. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Gus, for taking my call and uh, greeting everybody in the line. Um, yeah, the more I read about this young lady, I guess like you stated, it's very sad how confused she is to... You know, I, I look at it as manipulation. Um, the way he speaks to her, especially after her mother died. Um, and she would try to, I guess, interject and make excuses, you know, for him not seeing her all this time and not even asking about her mom. It just, it's, the whole thing is, is wild. I mean, I, he didn't love you, your mom. He had given nothing about her. I mean, it's just simple. Um, she made a comparison to how Hitler uh, looked at the Jews as being inferior, and she compared it to um, how uh, Strom Thurmond uh, portrayed uh, black people during that time. I think that comparison is pretty accurate. Person, I think it's a pretty accurate comparison. Um, yeah. To answer your question, Gus, about, um, I guess, if you are married to someone, I mean, you took a vow to, you know, to be with that person and this person is supposed to, quote unquote, have your back. Um, I don't know. I, I couldn't, I, I, I wouldn't be in a relationship with someone lying to me about something this big, this grand. Um, so it, it's. The whole situation seemed to me just, just a tacky, trashy situation. But um, I, I'll have some more commentary, but I'll wait till the next chapter seven. But uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, this is a pretty interesting book. So thank you for taking my call. It is fascinating, sir. Fascinating. So that's at least one person sounded like it would be a problem. It would not be, oh, you got $10,000? Wow. Okay. Next, what are we going to watch on Netflix? That's one person, and it's going to be, that is not cool. You got $10,000? What? And you did, and from who? <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Other folks who uh, dialed the retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, more and more as I am uh, listening to the read, uh I would have to admit that uh uh Strong Thurman in this book, the way he's portrayed, 
will convince a large group of non-white black people that he, number one, loved, quote-unquote, this lady and the mother. (laughs) I, 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 I just have to say that. I, I, will, I would also uh, wonder on what I- anybody else would think about that statement I just made. I think most black people reading this book today would be convinced in a, at a particular level that uh, Strawn Thurman did have genuine, quote-unquote, care for the daughter and the child bearer. Uh, I heard the word forgiveness uh, in the uh, first reading. And uh, it's ironic that earlier today, I came across Dr. Francis Crest Welsing speak on the subject of forgiveness in uh, reference and context of non-white people who are richly classified as black, uh, as she uh, normally was, uh, very clear, very concise. Uh, Dr. Welsing was very easy to understand on her thoughts on the system of racism, white supremacy on how the system of racist white supremacy made non-white black people, especially in this part of the world, uh, made it a tradition for us to have this term called forgiveness for things that are done against us, mistreatment is what I'm saying, especially mistreatment when it comes to white supremacy. Uh, also, uh, yeah, once, uh, once again, she went over the idea as far as the students uh, being active in, in a counter-racist way, uh, being not active. Uh, she stated that again, uh, she gave some clues to that uh, by stating uh, that most of the, a lot, well, a lot of the students on the campus are children of non-white black people who, I don't know if the term would, I would say wealthy, but basically they had the uh, income to uh, support their child or children uh, on the college level. Uh, I would say later on in time, the next generation, the next two generations, I would say after her, 1940s, I, I believe she was in college, uh, the, the students were, became a lot more active in counter-racist activities uh, uh, on college campuses, including uh, South Carolina State University. And uh, we know about the Orangeburg uh, 
incident that took place. That's just one of the activities that took place on that campus. Uh, uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? Yes, uh, his 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 means to. Oh, uh, it's obvious that uh, uh, the the uh, uh, daughter, uh, the main person in the book, uh, did and and her, her uh, husband did not uh, practice the, su- the suggestion that Mr. Fuller mentions about. Uh, uh, the coupling between uh, black males and black females by asking questions <laughs> to each other before you become emotionally attached to one another. It's obvious that that did, that did not take place. Uh, and then they became, they were married and still uh, the husband did not know about her background on like who was her father? Uh, I mean, did he ever ask the question, uh, or you know that sort of thing, father or mother? Uh, it's obvious. I would say, I would say it would be obvious. I haven't seen a picture of her, but if a white person was a part of her uh, 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 making, uh, it would be, it, it should be a question that would come up. Uh, uh, you know, before they were serious with one another, I, I uh, you know, I, I just can't imagine anything different. Uh, not saying that he would be able to guess his, his strong Thurman, but I mean, it, it, he can be quite somewhat accurate if, if, if he would say, uh, if he would have the idea in mind that the, the father was probably a white person. You know, or the you know, or the subject anyway comes up. Uh, like Mr. Fuller says, deep and intrinsic questions between the two, the two people. Uh, that I don't that that did not take place at all, <laughs> as far as I as far as what I observed. But uh, last last but not least, uh, once again, Jackie Robinson was mentioned as the first black person in the major leagues, and uh, I have been reading that that is not accurate. That is not accurate at all. Matter of fact, the person that actually was the first person in the major leagues, probably one reason why he was kind of like uh, not broadcast is because he killed a white, he killed a white male and was arrested for it and was uh, uh, judged not guilty because it was self-defense. I think he stabbed a white man to death. I know. Well, I know he stabbed a white man. I know he killed a white man. I think he stabbed him. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. You want to be lost in history? Kill a white person. That will definitely get you <laughs> high on the right. list for erasure. Uh, see Mark Essex. Many examples. Of Tojo. Many examples of this one. Uh, <laughs> right. Much obliged. Uh, both of our folks so far. Retired firefighter. Two two six two. I'll nab by the hands as I see them. Get to some of my notes as well i might pull off and give a little bit from strom thurman's autobiography have to see how i am feeling uh let's see let me get to my notes first from chapter six 
again, I have been taking boatloads of notes through this book. I generally um, take notes through all the books. I think anybody, if they've heard, we've been doing a book club for over a decade. I don't think there's any book club where we've read and then we stop to share thoughts where I've just been like, oh, that was interesting. Well, let's get to something like I normally, you know, have a few things to say, uh, passages that I thought were important. I, I mean, maybe medical apartheid. I feel like I had a lot of notes from that book. Um, Harriet A. Washington's other book, A Terrible Thing to Waste. I feel like I had a, a lot of highlights from that book as well. But I mean, wow. It is rare for me to have as many highlights as I have through this book. I feel like sometimes I haven't even shared them all. Getting to it. Uh, she says, make sure I get all the way back at the beginning. Woof. Man, oh, man, I can't believe sometimes I get confused. It's like, dang, did I really have this many highlights? Yes. Let's see. OK, we got past the standing on the head. Outright racist. Purity of the white and Negro races. Make sure I got that one. Oh, no, we already got that last one. Dixie comes up again. And this week, she said it was a carnival show in Dixie. It comes up several times. I just have to keep pointing out as it goes why that's been a theme song on the cows all these years. She said she had a distrust of all men, not white men because of her father, but all men. That I thought was hugely important as well, particularly because Janetta Rose Barris, that's exactly what she said. Whatever happened to daddy's little girl, she wrote specifically about S.E. Mae Washington Williams. But and she talked about this in her own life where she not having her father, biological father. She had that same distrust of all males. They didn't have to do anything and distrust got to get out of here you're going to abandon me that fear of abandonment all of that she talked exactly why that was the foundation for when we started this book Janetta Rose Barris and the Cows Archives whatever happened to daddy's little girl distrust of all males uh, she said she was conditioned now she said conditioned and she has conditioned in italics to be discreet because this is in the context of Strom Thurmond's lie and child rape this is, in my view, conditioned to lie. There are pertinent bits of information, things that I omit, things that I do not share. You can even bring this back when the money comes up. That is not discretion. That is deception, deceit. That's what we're talking about here, even with the land. That's what Strom Thurmond does, using language. So we're not even calling a lie a lie. We just call it being discreet. Let's see. Sometimes they'll say fudging too. Lots of ways to be deceitful with language. Uh, okay, see, and I said it comes up again. She said, I guess it reminded. Or she said all the waiters at the resorts were black. I bet that's still the case in 2022 in many, 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 many places all over the world. Uh, she said, I guess it reminded the guests of the good old days before the Civil War, as the song went, "Old times there are not forgotten." Those are the lyrics to Dixie, and that's it. There's an article about Strom Thurmond raping black children. That's the title of the article. Old times there are not forgotten. And that's the old times that they're talking about. White people, males and females, Strom Thurmond raping black children. Dixie indeed. Uh, let's see. The two alcoholics. Man, sobriety would be best. Uh, the white children. 
they're not ignorant about racism. I'm sure they know what a nigger is back then. Uh, uh oh, we got a Mr. Fuller mentioned. So I told you about television dominating and she took the words out of my mouth. I said last week, this was at a time where most black people didn't even have a television. I said that last week and you see how television has dominated this book where she's talking about all these different movies and film and it's more of them to come this week. We haven't even got to them all yet. She says we would go root for Jackie Robinson. I said, man, we are killing it. 75 years since he so-called uh, joined the major league baseball, not the first player, but 75 years like timing. Uh, so she says that she said they watched uncle Milton Burrow. I don't know why he's uncle. Uh, at one of the resorts, several television sets, which were still quite the luxury at the time. One day off, we went into Huntersville and sat in the balcony to watch Key Largo. Everyone was talking about the romance of Humphrey Bogart, who was like my father, well over two decades older than his wife, Lauren Bacall. That is a fuller flick right there. Man, he talks about Key Largo all the time. Like, gee willikers. Racism, white supremacy, all I think. What's one of the key lines? He's uh, the main character. I forgot the main actor's name. He asks him, he says, uh, what uh, you think he'll ever get enough at Humphrey Bogart who's this gangster? He says no I never have I never will Mr. Fuller said that's white supremacy right there you think you ever get tired of mistreating niggers you think you ever get tired of raping black children hmm I never have I don't guess I will no I never get tired of it forever and ever and ever but that is a really really good movie Key Largo uh, full of he talks about it all the time. He talks about it all the time. Can't believe that. Uh, and we got the same thing again. Woody Allen, Strom Thurmond, Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew. They just stack uh, Mary Kay Letourneau. They just stack them and stack them and stack them with these 50 and 60 year old white people. And they got to go and grab them a young man or grab them a young woman or both sometimes. I said, young man, I got to go grab a child, really, because that's what we're talking about. Child rape. I got to go get a young boy or a young girl. Uh, let's see. Gene Crouch. Strom Thurmond said she caught his eye at 15. Remember, I read that from his bio last week. She continues. Let's see. Strom Thurmond was soon on the cover of Time Magazine. That's the image that I have on Facebook with this image today. So you can see what that cover looks like. I was shocked that he would be dignified by that prestigious magazine. That just struck me as you are not understanding what racism, white supremacy is like. Strom Thurmond is a governor. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this is a system of racism, white supremacy. Like, you are not uh, understanding. Like, and, and, wait a minute, wait a minute. Time Magazine, can I get an O.J. Simpson one time? Time Magazine, this prestigious publication is the one that darkened up old Lorenzo James. Remember we talked about that when we read Jeff Tubin? Can't keep his pants up? Prestigious Magazine, get out of here. But how would she know? That's way, 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 way down the line. Uh, let's see. Next, she says, I was aware that the president, as well as other academics, felt deceived and abandoned by their friend. They're talking about Strom Thurmond, the pro progressive governor. But as I've said, state was very proper, dignified place, and they were not the type to sacrifice a student to get even, even with a traitor. Now, all of that, I'm not saying it's inaccurate. I just think in the 1950s, even 2022, I could not imagine a black faculty staff member at an HBCU 
oh, I'm going to get you. No count. Any white person who's running for like president, a white sitting governor, a white sitting senator, really a white sitting janitor. But I could not imagine a black university official, professor, professor, uh, executive, dean, cafeteria worker coming out. And we're going to publicize that you have been raping this black person, uh, president or governor. Or I couldn't imagine that even now. Regardless, particularly just because I don't like your stance or what have you, I could not imagine such a thing. And it's not like this behavior has stopped. So, I mean, do you all see this happening every day? People coming and outing Ed Buck and such for this conduct? I don't. And particularly HBCU faculty member. I'm going to risk our budget. We're already underfunded and under bomb threats. I'm going to risk our funding to try and out some white person. And who's even going to believe me? And this is. 1948 who's even gonna believe me not to mention I get expelled and in trouble with all the black people here let's see she continues she said so she was friends with Catherine Dawkins Lamar Dawkins that's where they rented their house when she and Julius got married or rented an area I guess in the house sublet it I have to look these folks up because they probably are prominent I just had never heard them before she said that they owned a delicious fried chicken restaurant I guess uh, they had a fried chicken lunch. It was only 52 cents. Um, yeah. Or oh, they owned the restaurant, Lamar's Restaurant, a favorite hangout of South Carolina State University students. Uh, Judge Strom Thurmond, race soldier, rapist, he did say to stay away from those fried foods. I agree like 1,000%. Uh, and that sort of thing be bragged about as black culture, eating a lot of bad food that will kill you. Uh, and I think even, I cringe on it, but I think even all that fried food might be related to kidney failure. I will have to double check to be certain, but man, I don't think it's going to do your kidneys any favors eating a whole lot of deep fried chicken and catfish and all the rest of it. Uh, Let's see. Next. Uh, She says the daughter of a successful building contractor in Columbia going to what retired firefighter says where a lot of the students here had parents who were well off, had the means to send them to this uh, South Carolina state college at the time. Catherine must have had a lot of white forebears because after Lizzie Mae Thompson, she was one of the lightest skinned girls on campus and considered one of the prettiest. We see that again over and over again. Lighter complexion, meaning the further away from crystal black you are, the closer to Strom Thurmond in complexion you are, the prettier you are, which again means maybe my mom was raped. Maybe my grandmother was raped. Maybe I'm the product of that rape. But hey, I'm a good looking girl. Hmm. Eh. That is the logic. We do not qualify for black mental health. Uh, So because Catherine is so pale, prettiest girls on campus, she used to take me to the white laundry to do our clothes and no one said a word when she tried to do that on her own, Essie May got the boot. So I guess she's pale, but not that pale. Uh, and she said that she wanted to thumb it in the, the person, the proprietor's nose. Like, do you know who my father is? I don't care, nigger. Out. <laughs> Let's see. Next. 
Uh, so she tells Julius, man, oh, man, it must be that must be black culture, bad food, fried chicken, chitlins, that sort of thing. Still, even 2022 for a lot of us, unfortunately, at least in this part of the world and not having very much dialogue at all, like 200 questions, 20 questions, 15. But like, man, how do you in any era get married to someone and you don't know who their father is now maybe you know she tricked him or what have you it's a lot of things going on world war ii just ended but i mean dang like 15 questions five questions like even from a medical perspective even if it's not you know your father is strom thurmond and oh my god and i gotta reconsider this and all that just you know even if her father had been a black person that would still be good to know like who is your dad like oh okay medical purposes uh the great Deion sanders just had major medical issues he almost thought we were going to lose him in the physical form he said oh i had blood clots my parent had to tell me oh we've had blood clot problems in the family that sort of thing is real like life-saving information that you would need a relative to tell especially if you plan on having children with this person like oh yeah can you give me a, a medical rundown how old are you how long did you live how long did your parents live medical problem oh okay that would be good information to know in addition oh your father is a white man oh that is really a talk about life-saving information i mean 1940s that might mean like whoa jesus christ that might mean a whole lot of things like wow how can i be finding this out so late like apparently that has been a long running proud component of black culture right up there with uh, the dozens chitlins marrying someone and or producing children with them without asking questions at all black and I'm proud put that in let's see so then when all this comes up now it's question time Julius is killing it the attorney comes out in him do you really think he loves you? Direct. Short. <laughs> like, uh-oh. And that's one of those what they call dichotomous. Yes or no. What does she say? He's been helping me. He doesn't have to. Is that a yes or a no? Uh-oh. 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 And she says, what did she say? I wish we could all love each other. That didn't answer the question. Much better to get all this before you get married. So you can see, like, is this person going to be honest? And particularly when it comes down to the nitty gritty, like I said, you got a white father? Like, I could die around this. Like, Jesus, Lord. And he's the governor? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> like, man, you can't be hiding that sort of thing. Like, come on, man. Uh, she says, uh, I'll never understand him. I'll always love you. He kissed me and we went inside, but we rarely, if ever, spoke about my father. As I told Julius, I wasn't even sure when I'd ever see him again saddest book I've ever read in my life who says that about their pet her mother is gone I don't know when if I'll see my father again next time I see him he might be on TV stay away from the niggers you see my beautiful 22 year old wife here mm, come here Jean <laughs> what are you saddest book I've ever read she continues it wasn't uh, it wasn't as if it had been often a few times in many years he disappeared before and he disappeared now. And if he became president, I tried to joke. I doubted that he'd invite us to the White House. 
No kidding. The White House. Oh, and I love Julius. That's why they call it that. I love Julius. I don't know if he's quite Matthew J. Perry. Judge Matthew J. Perry, but I am uh, I'm feeling Julius. I'm feeling Julius. Uh, oh, God. Saddest book I've ever read. She says, so we got, she ran up to the strange black guy on the street, thought he was her dad. She was going to hug him. That's one. Before she's in New York, she says, oh, my goodness, this bohemian environment. I wish that I, my, my mom, Strom Thurmond, and my mom, Carrie Butler, could walk hand in hand in New York City and no one would give a care. That's two. Third, these are just like really short sentences that epitomize the sorrow of this book. Interracial relationships, so-called, are sad. I would have loved for my father to have been able to love her mother, Carrie Butler, publicly. I don't even know what that means. Are you saying you want him to parade out his black housewife who is about the same age as his 22-year-old wife? Or I guess she was a little older by that time, but you want him to parade her out to the world? This is my nigga wench. I've been raping her since she was 15. Probably been raping and taking advantage of everyone in her family for generations down here in South Carolina because that's how we get down. Really? And again, it's just fundamental not understanding. This is not, what do you mean? Like that talk as though this is some sort of a love arrangement with her and her mother. If he loved her, oh man, just pick up the phone and give me a call. I don't care what it is. I might have married another white woman or whatever, but I mean, I am governor of South Carolina was almost president. You pick up the phone to give me a call. You got kidney problems. You're at the best hospital on the East Coast today. That doesn't have anything to do with love. Just I'm going to look out. You can't even do that. And then trying to get to my notes. We'll get it in order. She says uh, there was no dialysis then or at least that my mother could afford. I bet Strom Thurmond could have afforded. I have to check to see if medically if they had that sort of technology at that time. But I'm sure Strom Thurmond could have got something. Better facility. Something. And Fast forward 2022, this is one of the comorbidities, as they call it, for COVID-19, having kidney problems, alcohol, diet. Those are some of the things right there go right into kidney problems. Another one I can get water, drink lots and lots of water, not sodas, not non-water beverages and koofiness, just water and lots of it. Your kidneys will thank you. We even had Dr. Vanessa Grubbs. She was on the program and she talked about that. Even in fact, you had to get a kidney transplant. Racism, white supremacy. Again, talked about that in medical apartheid, too. And you got kidney failure. Just it. Uh, that makes you uh, immunocompromised, generally speaking, which, again, puts you on the comorbidity for COVID-19. I am not a medical doctor, victim of white supremacy, but we did have Vanessa Grubbs on the program twice her books her book hundreds of interlaced fingers she actually came to seattle <laughs> i saw her in person and she was on the program at the start of the pandemic to talk about all of this as it relates to covid19 uh next the television she says uh i recalled ethel merman and annie get your gun singing i want a wedding in a big church with champagne and caviar welsing moments all over the place and again the influence of television 
those stories. We talked about this with Pam, Renithia Tate, how so many of us, we get enthralled with these uh, fairy tales, as they call them, Cinderella and television, where they got the big, she just said it, the big wedding, the big white gown, normally a white woman marrying a white man with a big white cake and a white church with white Jesus. White, 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 got it. But that's the narrative, right? Cinderella and all the rest of Sleeping Beauty. That's the narrative you get programmed with. That's what we are supposed to act out. Even the caviar, that's for tip. Now, we just had Easter religion of white supremacy. Fertility, that's what I said. Fertility right there, putting all the eggs and everything everywhere. Then what are we supposed to have at the wedding? Caviar. Fertility all the way. And that's black eggs. Unless I'm mistaken. Wellsing moment all the way. Uh, she says, uh, so she doesn't get the big wedding. My, at least maybe if they had the big wedding, Julius would have known who her father was. They would have had to go over some of these questions about family earlier. Maybe. Anywho, uh, Mary said he was ready. Oh, this is talking about. Uh, so Mary's about to die. She does have another child. Her son, Willie, as he may's half brother, she said Willie was ready to go out on his own. He's still in high school and he's ready to go out on his own in high school. It's 2022. We got people who have parents here. I want you to think how many of you all, particularly a black male, you think they're ready to go out on their own at 16 years old? Like, hey, hey, I know his mother just died. He's got it. Don't even worry about it. He got it. He's good. He's almost done with high school. I mean, hey, he's a grown man, basically. What? What? Victims guaranteed qualified. I beg to differ, but that attitude is very prominent. As I said, you're 18. Wow. You are out the door in a system of white supremacy. Love it. Love. Matter of fact, system of white supremacy. They say Jerry Sandusky because we got all kinds of predators waiting or we just stuff them in the prison. So they say, hey, make it 17 and out the door, 16 and out the door, 12 and out the door. I love it. Ed Buck. I love it earlier the better I just love it like I'm tender Tamir Rice we got lots of things we do with young black boys and girls they continue oh my god so they go to the hospital medical apartheid didn't I mention that one Harriet A. Washington I mentioned that one that's in the book club 2016 she goes to the hospital my mother is about to die and the white nurse on the ward was as cruel as a human could be she didn't say her name was Nurse Rivers I didn't hear Nurse River. She didn't say that. She said she'll never be able to enjoy these flowers. The white nurse told her. Wow. <laughs> Medical apartheid. Inspiration right there uh, for more black people to be going to med school and doing what they can, being nurses and all that to try to avoid this as best we can. Nurse Ratchet. That's, that's there. We get it again. The word again. Ratchet. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. That's it. Uh. I found my way to my mother's bed on the ward. She looked terrible. She was gasping, her eyes bulging from her face in a mask of terror and pain. She was so young, far too young to be this way. Yet she was now as frail as an old woman. I saw this. They had a report in the L.A. Times this week. Saddest book I've ever read. 38 years old. And again, she's 38. Strom Thurmond lived to be almost 101. He didn't eat fried chicken, right? That's what that is. 
the report that I saw this week in the LA Times, they were talking about the number, the skyrocketing number of people who die homeless and particularly black people to be accurate. They said particularly black males, uh, but they said 50 is the new 70 because you have so many black people, non-white people, medical conditions, all the rest of having gotten adequate care, kidney failure. I think that was one that they talked about. 50s, the new 70. Carrie Butler to die at 38. Kidney failure. And with Nurse Ratchet, racist white woman there, she can't even see those flowers. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. This thing now is over. Yeah, get out of here. Like, why? Heard that one before, right? We read Henrietta Lacks, too. Immortal Life of. Continuing. Her father gets over a million votes. I just think that's important at that time period too. didn't have social media and all the rest of it to try and say that he was just some sort of southern phenomenon. Over a million votes is not anything to sneeze at. Uh, the whole conversation with S.E. May and Strom Thurmond is uh, just extraordinary. For the, Talk about old bunkum. The nonsense analogies, the deception, the manipulation. I mean, it's just classic. And particularly, this is especially effective where it's exponentially more effective when you have someone who is biologically related to the white person. This is their father. So they got all these emotional attachments and everything else. And her mother's. I mean, really, this is her only parent. I mean, (laughs) Mary is there and that's great and everything but this really this is your only parent saddest book that I've ever read Um, she ends up telling just everything about this is backwards she's telling him oh your side piece died what and then he's got to go through this act you know is he really shook up about this is he stunned oh my gosh he hasn't seen her and who knows does he care like ah my negress has died. Oh, I would have sent her some flowers. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, well, moving on. Make sure you stay away from that. Fr- I mean, everything is saying. Then to get into the details, she says, uh, you abandoned her. She's, she's afraid to say, you know, she was really hurt that you just kicked her to the curb and all that. She's like, what are you talking about? I didn't kick her to the herd. She had somebody else. You know, I didn't go get my little other young 21, 22-year-old white woman, Jean Crouch. I didn't go do that until after she got her guy. Hank, really? Really? That is no ways. Like, I'm feeling, I'm going to have to read a little bit from his autobiography. Uh, let me see. She says, I'm still with dear, dear Senator for the moment, but she says, to argue with a lawyer, really to argue with a white person, it was possible he sought refuge in Gene Crouch only after it had ceased to be available with Carrie Butler. That just seems ludicrous it i tended to doubt it logically but it did blunt my implacable hostility enough to prevent prevent me from addressing the outrage of the age difference now see again where we're hiding she said before gene crouch is about the same age as she is you didn't just kick my mom to the curb let her die couldn't get her medical assistance or anything get her a checkup extra set of pillows for her uh, transition you go get a white woman who is my age 
But I'm going to, you know, just push that to the side because maybe you were hurt. Maybe my mom moved on first, and so you just had to go, and you just got Gene Crouch on the rebound. Are you serious? Saddest book I've ever read. He continues, as he may, there's no man in this country who cares more about the Negro than I do. Now, this whole, like, really, really. If you really care about the Negro, check on your Negro side piece. How about, wait a minute, if you really care about the Negro, get your penis out of that 15-year-old Negro. If you really care about the Negro, if you are going to rape that 15-year-old and get her pregnant, you're going to be looking out for her like way before she turns 16. Way, way. There's not going to be any nonsense where she's running around thinking that John Henry Washington is her father and some random Negro on the street is her father. Like, she already knows. Oh, yeah, Strom Thurmond is my dad. No confusion about this. I'm hooked up. I got everything I need. They're sending checks out in Coatesville. John Henry Washington is getting a stipend for being a filling dad. That's caring about the Negro, at least to me. You doing these tacky hidden visits? You can't even go out and get, I don't know, a salad and a glass of water with your daughter? Didn't even call her daughter, right? That was like, oh, he used the D word. Remember that last week? Called me daughter. That, that's all I need to know about what you, how much you care about the Negro. Uh, she says, uh, I think you know that he stared hard at me. I had heard him, genuinely heard him. He believed what he was saying. Look, look around here. Look at your college. Look at my programs. I'm doing all that's humanly possible. Are you serious? We're like convicts here. We can't even leave the perimeter. She says, all this stuff you said about keeping us out of your homes, your churches, your swimming pools. This one. Oh, man, this one. I love this one. He says, is that really where you want to go, Essie? A white swimming pool? We built a beautiful pool right here on campus. Like, are you out of your cotton picking mind? The number of black people who died trying to go to swimming pools where they normally didn't have a nigger pool. Generally, it was the white pool and you all can go to the creek and all that. We've read that over and over and over. South Carolina State didn't even have a law school. They had that. We heard that. Judge Perry, they had to go to court to get that. If you love the Negro, when you build the white law school, you build the Negro law school, too. At minimum, if it's going to be separate but equal, that's not what you did. In addition to raping the black children and all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. And then I mean, we got all of it. The name calling. That's all that is. Calling somebody a communist, that's all that is, is name calling. That's the exact same thing as calling somebody a Negro, especially if it's a black person. But I mean, really, there's no basis. I would not waste like a millisecond. What do you mean, communist? <laughs> all that is, is name calling. Might as well just call the person a Negro, which they do frequently. It would be better. Just more sophisticated instead of saying that you're a Negro. Ooh, you're a communist. Ooh. Uh, let's see. She talk about spending the spies everywhere. Man, race soldiers like Strom Thurmond. Nobody sends out more and better so-called spies than racist man, racist woman, racist child. They got the white uh, sovereignty commission and all these different clan outfits and Cointel Pro. Were you snooping on the nigga? Are you trying to vote? Are you trying to vote? Are you trying to sleep with a white woman and all the rest of this? Like, come on. And that's even today. Black identity extremists. Nobody does more snooping and spying 
then racist man, racist woman, racist child. That's Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, too. I said Nixon's piano the first time he was a guest here was Racial Matters, the FBI's secret file on black America from 1960 to 1971. Snooping and spying on Negroes forever, basically. Uh, let's see. And then all this about not inferior, you're different. What a liar. Uh, and he says, it's the South. You can't change this. I have no idea what that means. And particularly, she said last week that the South won when the lynchers of Willie Earl went free. She started this book with the lynching of Zachariah Walker that happened near Philadelphia. Did the South win that one, too? I wanted to get that in last week because I thought that was important. I have no idea what that means. This is the South. What does that even mean? I thought we were supposed to be practicing justice everywhere. Is that true? Does the Constitution apply? We're supposed to be practicing justice, right? Let's see. He says there's nothing in this country you won't be able to do. Will I be able to go to the swimming pool? I would have a lot, especially in 1948. Like, ooh-wee, I think you just told an astronomical lie, Strom Thurmond. Like, an astronomical lie. I think it's things right now. Can I go out on the front steps and announce who my father is? How about that one? Let's try that. Disgraceful, man. Uh, let's see. Oh, my God. She says, what does she say? She says, we can't get served at the counter at Woolworths. Retired firefighter talking about the, the rapid change that happened in black uh, HBCUs and students within about 15 years from these events, maybe a little less than that. Uh, why would you want to? The food's no good. I bet these restaurants right over here are much better. They serve good fresh food. I know they do. You can't even get a vegetable at Woolworths. I've never even seen spinach and green beans and okra. <laughs> are you flipping serious? Are you flipping serious? We don't have equal access to go to these establishments, which are getting some tax dollars. It's not. Oh, that is unjust and white supremacy racism for them to just say no niggers allowed. And that's oh well, that's the South. That's just what it is. Or we got to be patient. It's eh, they don't even have okra. You don't want to go there. All this mess over a hot dog. Got communists around here. Got you really to fight and tear up everything over a hot dog. Hot dogs are terrible. That's right up there with Munchables. But I mean, are you serious? We could start with just, you know, white people not raping black children. That would be a good one, maybe. Let's see. He says he got taken out of context like this. Thurman guy is the lamest dude in the world. Like he, he reminds me so much of Ben Tillman, like just lying. Remember that Ben Tillman? He would lie on other white politicians and then they would call him on and he would just all right, all right. And he would leave it on to go to something else like he reminds old bunkum. That's what they call it. Just to sit around and lie and make up nonsense. Oh, they took me out of context. I love the Negro. See what I did around here. I'm your best friend. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, and then she calls him on the metaphor. She says, uh, Yankee interfere. Southerners are ultra sensitive about Yankee interference, telling them how to live their lives. It'll all work out in time. Tell that to Walter Scott, right? Tell that to state Senator Reverend Clementa Pinckney. Tell them that. Mother Emanuel AME. Tell that it'll all work out in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. 
Southerners are ultra sensitive. It'll all work out in time. But change takes time. Imagine if your husband tried to force you to kiss him. You'd say no. Carrie Butler, like she tried to say no to you. You'd resist. But if you gave you but if he gave you time, let you get to know him. See, you end up married. It all works out. She responds with some logic. Given his own marriage, my father's choice of analogy was highly unfortunate. It made me extremely uncomfortable. Tell me about again. Jean Crouch, his current white wife at the time of this conversation between them. She was literally a couple months older than Essie Mae Washington. Essie Mae Washington Williams. Get the whole name. Uh, and he comes back and doubles down. I guarantee I care more about the Negro. Uh, let's see. Oh, my gosh. This was the line retired firefighter was talking about. She says, I knew he loved my mother. I believe he loved me after his fashion. It was an unspeakable love. I don't know what that means. Have you all heard that one before? I have an unspeakable love. I love you, but I can't say anything about it. And you better not either. Give you a few nickels to keep you quiet. But don't you say a word. But I love you. I just can't, you know, shh. Uh, forbidden by the culture and custom of the South, as he called it. The money was speaking it for him. It wasn't hush money. It wasn't a bribe. I feel like the fact that she has to load that as opposed to just telling you what she thinks this money was. You got to say that it wasn't hush money. It wasn't a bribe. Especially when you say it's not hush money, it's not a bribe. And the result is he gives you this money. You don't even tell your husband where you got it from. You don't even tell the readers of the book how much money he gave you. Incidentally, I said, I speculated. I think he gave her since this was marriage and he just ran for president. I think he might have hit her with like a thousand dollars. She said it was stuffed with hundreds. I think he might have hit her with a thousand dollars. Could have even been more. Five thousand. Who knows if he at minimum gave her a thousand dollars. The inflation calculator today, that would be about make a, a nickel under $12,000. So I was about right on point. That is like a huge chunk of change to get and not tell your spouse like at, or not even make up something like, oh, I hit the lottery or, you know, uh, a black relative that we do like, uh, you know, hit the lottery and sent me some or died and left me some money in their will or that is a like, wow, wow. I don't have an attempted partner, but I mean, if that was me, it was a black person. Like I said, not selling cocaine or anything, nothing criminal, legally earned. Here you go. Love the gusty. Do something with the cows or, you know, go buy some yoga mats and veggies, you know, buy to mix it up. Um, $12,000. If I had an attempted partner, like, ooh, we <laughs> like I would be expecting like hell and brimstone. If I got this money and they find out like you stashed this or hit it or whatever, 12 G's, you don't say like, wow, and this isn't hush money. The result is just me hushing to my own black husband. Nefarious all the way. Uh, Let's see. It wasn't hush money. The money, she said, it was the governor's own outpouring of love and shame and frustration. Like, why would I have to give you money out of shame if I love you? 
What would I have to be ashamed about? Oh, I was raping a 15-year-old <laughs> and then didn't acknowledge this. Oh, I got it. <laughs> I don't know where that would shift from shame to, I mean, well, so tacky and sad. Uh, demonstrating his own affection. She said he was an arch southerner, to be sure, but he was also only human. He had gotten carried away. I might have as well. Oh, my God. Actually, I concluded Strom Thurmond had already come a long way. I don't know what that means. I would forgive him as the Bible says to do. Isn't that that's the name of the book while we're reading this book to begin with. The Bible told them so. White evangelicals fight to preserve white supremacy. I said it's the religion of white supremacy. And Dr. Welsing's quote, Dr. or at least when she came on this here platform, Dr. Welsing talked about forgiveness. She said, and in fact, it's double on South Carolina because it was the day after Dylan Storm Roof killed nine parishioners, Mother Emanuel AME, right down the road from South Carolina State. She said, when are we going to come out of the slave mentality? Forgive the master. Obey the master. Forgive white people for what they have done to us. Religion of white supremacy. That, and I, I highlighted it. She used the word conditioned when she talked about being discreet. We've been conditioned in many ways. This right here is a big one. We have been conditioned to accept all kinds of bunkum from Strom Thurmond and all the red Dylan Storm Roof and the long, long list of individuals classified as white. We have been conditioned to accept any type of bunkum and racism from them and to do what? Forgive. The Bible told us, so, white Jesus, turn the other cheek. That's what we are supposed to do. Forgive. And they just continue to practice racism, white supremacy, like the little children she was babysitting. The next generation they just pick up and we forgive the next generation and then the next generation and the next generation. And that's why we're sitting here. 2022 South Carolina still. Strom Thurmond has his statue. J. Marion Sims has his statue. Pitchfork Ben Tillman has his statue. Dylan Storm Roof chilling. Anything else? See, took a lot of they don't have they have Booker T. Washington. I said, man, it'd be something different. Do they have Willie Earl Day in South Carolina? Do they have that? I also said they should have Harvey Gantt Day. Everybody should know Harvey Gantt. In fact, Matthew J. Perry, the late honorable judge, Matthew J. Perry connected with that case as well. They should have that, too. Uh, book, I mean, I, victims guaranteed qualified. I don't have anything against Booker T. Washington, but it would impress me more if they had Willie Earl Day in South Carolina. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Last thing I'll get in the segment where she says Julius, her husband, for one, didn't trust anything Strom, Strom Thurmond did. Logical victim of racism. I am liking Julius. He's no Judge Matthew Perry, but I'm liking Julius. Though he generally avoided the subject, just as I did to keep the peace, sometimes with friends, we couldn't avoid the subject of politics. That right there, he never tried to pretend that he had warm feelings toward this father-in-law he would in all likelihood never meet. She wanted to give her father the benefit of the doubt. That race soldiers, whites, never get the benefit of the doubt. That's just kind of racist logic. Uh, When you are married to this person, we might have offspring 
and we have to avoid politics or we have to avoid talking about your father that is psychosis I don't know what else to say I mean, what how are we going to talk to our children about our family do we talk to the children about the family or is that another one we got to be discreet about that <laughs> can't even talk anymore saddest book I have ever read confusion on top of confusion on top of conf and it just goes on and on and on and on we started from the very beginning child doesn't even know who her father is now we get out here and I can't even tell my husband all this stuff we can't talk about my dad what happens when, like I just said we have children saddest book I've ever read total disgrace Strom Thurmond is the worst uh, if you have other comments write them down uh, we will get back after the second audio segment concludes uh, so we're picking up, we ended on the end of chapter 6, so we'll pick up beginning of chapter 7 uh, with Essie May Washington Williams, Dear Senator, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment, dose. Chapter 7, Dear Senator. I never imagined myself as a college dropout, but when I'd found myself pregnant with our first child, that's what I had to become. This was before daycare. You simply couldn't be a mother and a student at the same time. So in the fall of 1949, I took a leave of absence to start our family, while Julius remained in law school. I decided to go to Coatesville to have our child. I had my family there, I knew the hospital situation, and I had plenty of support. Furthermore, although I loved the college and my friends there, I was happy to take a breather from the South. I wanted the best medical care I could get, and what passed for separate but equal in South Carolina was anything but. The day I left Julius to go home to Coatesville, Orangeburg was celebrating its renowned annual Grand American Coon Hunt. I took this as an omen that it was high time to say at least a temporary farewell. As before, I was relieved to be back in the North. The southern custom of strict separation of the races didn't seem natural at all to me, even though my father insisted that it was down there. Born a southerner, I wasn't sure I could ever be one. President Truman's civil rights campaign had helped blacks turn a new corner in their integration into and respect by the American mainstream. Everywhere I turned, there was black achievement. Ralph Bunch won the Nobel Peace Prize for mediating the original crisis in Palestine that led to the foundation of Israel. He was the first black to be so honored. Another black, Gwendolyn Brooks, was the first black to win a Pulitzer Prize for her poetry. Jackie Robinson won the Most Valuable Player Award in Major League Baseball. Nat King Cole had the number one record, Mona Lisa while Mahalia Jackson's gospel concert sold out Carnegie Hall. Ethel Waters became a huge television star with her show Beulah, and the Naval Academy admitted its first black midshipman. One of the biggest films was Pinky, starring Jean Crane as a light-skinned black trying to pass for white. Black was all the rage in 1949 and 1950. Of course, this was all happening in the Northeast, where I was living. Orangeburg was so benighted and becalmed, I wasn't sure the news was getting down there. 
even if it were, I had the feeling my schoolmates were too constrained by the know-your-place southern system that my father embodied to stir themselves to the achievements they were capable of if only they lived elsewhere. Julius was different. He was burning up in Orangeburg, eager to get the law degree and turn the South upside down. I was terrified about an ultimate confrontation with my father, who to Julius was the ultimate adversary. Fortunately, my father's political fortunes seemed to be coming to an end. In 1950, his gubernatorial term expiring, he ran for the United States Senate. If he could become the South's candidate for president, I think he assumed that winning a Senate seat would be a foregone conclusion. However, this time he faced a powerful opponent, a man who was a far bigger, more devout racist than my father could ever pretend to be in his worst incarnation. Olin Johnston, the incumbent senator, was himself a former South Carolina governor. Unlike my privileged father, Johnston, at 53, five years my father's senior, was the son of a sharecropper and had worked as a textile assembly line worker as a young man. He got past a flat feet disqualification to fight in France during World War I, albeit without the medals my father won in World War II. Johnston, too, was a consummate campaigner and politician, serving numerous terms in the state legislature before ascending to the governor's mansion. Even though they both had folksy styles, Johnston's The Earthy Man of the People was able to paint my father as an aristocrat, at least relatively speaking, which was a liability in any election. My father responded by painting Johnston as a Truman man. Johnson had stuck with the Democrats rather than the Dixiecrats, and my father tried to make him seem like less than a true Southerner for doing so. In return, Johnson played the race card, asserting that my father was soft on Negroes. Johnston trotted out all sorts of evidence, the hospital board appointment, the pardon, the school support, everything except me. For some reason, the secret daughter rumor that had come up during the presidential campaign had evaporated. I'm sure Lizzie Mae Thompson was relieved. I know I was. I was surprised that Johnston did not judge it up. He even attacked my father for inviting the black governor of the Virgin Islands to stay at the governor's mansion in Columbia. The man, a Truman appointee, had spurned the invitation, so my father lost on both fronts. The two candidates, governor and senator, squared off in an endless series of debates over barbecues around the state. Several times the two men nearly came to blows, especially over my father's insinuation that Johnston had not stood up in the Senate against Truman's campaign to fully integrate the armed services. To Senator Johnston, calling him soft on affronts to racism was worse than calling him soft on communism. Johnston reposted by calling my father the worst sort of liar, and my father said, let's go outside. In the end, no punches were thrown, but it hurt me to see my father using race to try to beat a racist. I guess all's fair in love and politics.
In the end, my father lost the election by 30,000 votes out of over 300,000 cast. The Korean War had just broken out, and it was felt by some that Johnston, who stood firmly behind Commander-in-Chief Truman, benefited from this. Other political analysts felt that the 30,000 votes that beat my father came from black voters. Even though my father never once used the N-word, in contrast to his opponent's endless offensiveness, blacks in South Carolina, the ones who voted, would not forgive my father for his Dixiecrat candidacy. They preferred a Truman man to a pitchfork man. My baby was born in Coatesville. He was a beautiful boy. We named him Julius after his father. I always thought of Julius Caesar. I hoped he would grow up to be a leader, just like I believed his father was about to become. After all, it did run in the family. I moved back to Orangeburg so Big and Little Julius could be together. We arrived soon after the election to pack up and move to Savannah, Julius's home. He had graduated from the law school in June 1950 and had decided the cheapest place to live and start a career was the one he knew best. He wanted to be an activist lawyer. He wanted to change things. He felt the South needed him much more than the North did. I would have loved him to have gone to Philadelphia or Washington, D.C., but not necessarily back to New York. That was too fast, too competitive. But Julius preferred Savannah. And it did seem that a smaller town like that was the best place to raise our son and the other children that we knew would be coming along. Sometime before we left, my father showed up in a black car with his driver. I was a full-time mother, but occasionally I would go to the school library and read or take out books. He had called our house to say he was coming, and I met him again in the president's office. His term as governor would soon be up. He had no judgeship or other post waiting for him. He told me he was moving to Aiken, the town where I was born, to open a private law practice. I felt sorry for him. Was Strom Thurmond already a forgotten man? He had noticed Julius's picture in the yearbook, one of the two graduates of the first class at State's Law School. Strom Thurmond was proud of him. He's a good-looking young man, SMA. Very handsome. He looks a little Spanish. He's half Indian, I said, on his mother's side. I told him about baby Julius. I thought of saying he looks a little like you, but I knew that would have made him awfully uncomfortable. He never once referred to the baby as his grandchild, never asked if he could drive over to our house and see him, never asked to meet my handsome husband, his son-in-law, the graduate of his law school. I suppose it was just as well, giving their adversarial political positions, but it would have been nice if my father had asked. Because he had nothing to lose now, I hoped that he might get more personal with me, but he kept it cool and formal. The most he would do was urge me to go back to school. You need that education, SMA, as much as your husband needs his. But that was as close as he would get, like a guidance counselor or the teacher that he was. As much as I wanted to belong to him, I never felt like a daughter, only an accident. I had read that Oscar Wilde called homosexuality the love that dare not speak its name.
So it was with whatever so it was with whatever the emotion was between my father and me. Something, some strong feeling, was definitely there. That was what was drawing him to me and me to him. But that feeling was all bottled up. We both felt it from opposite sides of an invisible wall. It was segregated love. Are you going to miss it? I didn't want to call him governor anymore. I had never called him father, so I didn't call him anything. Of course I will, Essie he answered reflectively. I've been a public servant most of my life. It's been a long time since I had a private life. I hope I know what to do with it. Maybe you can have some children yourself now? That was a personal comment, as personal a comment as I had ever made to him. But as a new mother, I couldn't contain my own emotions at the joys of parenthood. It was a gospel I wanted to spread. He didn't answer. Senator Johnston reminds me of Cole Bleas, I said. How do you know about Cole Bleas? My father was surprised at the reference. By now I was getting insulted that he assumed I knew nothing. But fathers could be like that, particularly fathers of black people. You told me to study Calhoun. Bleas, like Tillman, followed in his footsteps, wouldn't you say? My God, no, SMA. He was appalled that I had mentioned the two men in the same breath. Coleman Bleas, the Southern Carolina governor and senator who seceded Tillman, was the champion of the poor white trash in the World War I era, was to me predecessor and inspiration of the victorious and profane Olin Johnston. My father tried to prevent that demagogue from getting elected. He managed the campaign of his opponent. We lost that one, too, he said, shaking his head. The main difference between the cultivated Ben Tillman and the wild man Colblis seemed largely one of degree and couth. Every other word out of Blees's mouth was nigger. He opposed black education as a ruination of perfectly good field hands. He advocated mob violence, pardoning countless clan types, setting a record 1,700 pardons in his term as governor. In one rape case, he released the convicted assailant of a black woman on the grounds of, why would the man rape someone he could have for a quarter? He made the amazing comment, I have serious doubt that the crime of rape can be committed upon a Negro. Blacks to him were comparable to the order of the lower animals. Adultery seems to be their favorite pastime. I guess what offended my father was not so much the theory of black inferiority, which even Calhoun espoused, but Bleese's lack of hope for the Negro. My father, a true believer in education, was deeply sincere in his confidence that black people could make great strides in society. He just wanted to keep them separate. I suppose South Carolina must have a weakness for demagogues, I said. The world has a weakness, SMA. That's what I'm most worried about, the communists. That's what I'm most sorry about, not being in Washington to fight them. And that's the biggest danger facing us today. What about states' rights? 
Fighting communism is the one thing the federal government must do, but I'm afraid of how deep the communists are there. You see what Senator McCarthy is saying. The witch hunts had begun, and my father missed not being on the front lines of this modern inquisition. The bomb had the whole world in terror. Spies were being unearthed here and in Europe. Alger Hiss was just convicted, as was British scientist Klaus Fuchs. Paul Robeson's passport had been revoked because of his suspected communist affiliation. Robeson had made the near-treasonous assertion that blacks were treated much better in Russia than they were in the United States. A lot of black people were attracted to communism because of its dedication to equality. Suffice it to say, this was not a popular position to take in this emerging time of the Red Scare. I didn't begrudge my father his Cold War hard line. He was a patriot who had risked his life fighting Hitler. Joseph Stalin was fiercely scary, as was the communism he had brutalized his country into. He handed me another envelope. For your baby, he said, and try to go back to school as soon as you can. Get that degree. It's your passport. I knew he had been displeased when I had dropped out, but he never tried to make me feel like a failure over it. He knew about love. I hope he did. He reached out and hugged me, not letting me even think about turning away as I had the last time. This time, miraculously, he kissed me on the cheek. He had never done that before. Maybe he felt he had fences to mend with me, and it was to show how much he did care. Then he left me in the office and went down to his car and drove away. I was numb. I knew it was my father riding off into what seemed like the sunset of his career. Yet, with my mother's passing and the shock of my father's campaign style, my emotions for him had been drained out of me. All I could do was stare at the huge wad of money. He was a distant father, perhaps a false father, but he was certainly a generous one. Aided by my father's nest eggs, we settled into Savannah, which was about a three-hour drive of Orangeburg, south of Orangeburg, right on the coast. Savannah was the most beautiful place I had ever seen, laid out in elegant squares draped in moss, lined by stately mansions and townhouses of the antebellum elite shaded by magnolias and palms, horse-drawn carriages clip-clopped down the spacious, gracious streets. The city was frozen in another gentler era. Despite my time in Orangeburg, because we were so restricted about leaving campus, I had never been to Charleston, which, like Savannah, was also a city of great charm and history. But we had plans. We had lots of plans. We first moved into the home of Julius's parents, whom I had not met before. His mother was blind. His father, who now was a truck driver, was totally devoted to her, caring for her like a little baby. Julius had a sister, a social worker, who also lived in the house. It sounded crowded, but there was plenty of room. Compared to sleeping in the kitchen, as we had in Orangeburg, 
Our room, where little Julius slept with us, felt like a suite at the Waldorf Astoria. While we were in an all-black neighborhood, the houses were all quite grand, ancient, and charming. They were the homes of rich whites once, before General Sherman took the city. He didn't burn it, the way he did Columbia and Atlanta. It was too pretty for even a rebel hater to destroy. I loved walking around Savannah, getting to know it. Julius knew Savannah, so he loved getting away from it. His hobby was deep-sea fishing, off the lush nearby sea islands. He had a tiny boat that reminded me of the one in Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. I would get seasick, so I sat on the shore and prepared the fish fry that would inevitably follow. One Sunday, we attended the first African Baptist church, right near the waterfront in the heart of the rich white district. The stately old church used to house a white congregation, but a freed slave bought it long ago and rebuilt it in brick as a black house of worship. The first brick building to be owned by blacks in Georgia. While First African was a cultural experience, our normal place of worship was the First Congregational Church of Savannah. We rarely missed a Sunday. In many ways, Savannah at first seemed like a vacation. Unfortunately for Julius, it was too much of a vacation. Starting his law firm seemed more difficult than he had imagined. He thought that since there were so few black attorneys, he would have the city to himself. There was a reason for the number. Almost all the blacks in Savannah were too poor to afford lawyers. Although he was admitted to both the Georgia and South Carolina bars and affiliated himself with the top black lawyers in town, a man called Mayfield there was simply not enough paid work to support us. So Julius began doing pro bono work for the NAACP. Criminal defense cases, some futile discrimination suits, welfare claims. He wasn't changing the world yet, and he was impatient. To help out financially, I took a job as a secretary in the public relations office at Savannah State College, which was Georgia's counterpart to my alma mater at Orangeburg. Later, I got an even better job as assistant to the president, Howard Jordan, a South Carolina state alumnus who had a soft spot for Orangeburg people. A kind woman named Mary, who came in to look after Julius's mother, did double duty as babysitter. The two colleges were of the same vintage, founded under the Morrill Land Grant Act, but Savannah State, whose original name was Georgia State Industrial College, seemed grander. Lots of red brick Georgian buildings with those southern plantation columns. There were elegant circular drives and lovely landscaping with moss draping everything. As at Orangeburg, the students were impeccably dressed, very polite, very serious, and largely apathetic when it came to politics. They knew their place was not behind barricades, not if they wanted to enter the black bourgeoisie, which most of them did. I didn't begrudge them that it, although Julius did, Considering the slave cabins that stood everywhere as a reminder of where their forebears had come from, the comforts of the bourgeoisie seemed most attractive. Eventually, we got our own place, 
a duplex apartment in a newer all-black neighborhood near the college. What other kind of neighborhood existed in the South? The minute a black family moved into a declining neighborhood, the whites would flee and create suburbs. We enjoyed having much of Savannah to ourselves. Our friends were the people Julius had grown up with. Doctors, funeral homeowners, realtors, all somewhat prosperous, none rich. We entered each other at our homes. We entertained each other at our homes. For a city with a black population as large as Savannah's, there weren't many places to go. Savannah was tightly segregated, and most of the blacks there were of the plantation school, never wanting to push matters to open new doors for themselves. There were a few black cafes, a few roadhouses to hear jazz and dance, but it was a long way from 7th Avenue. It was great for kids, though, and in the 1950s, our second son, Ronald, was born. Hmm. She said they're from the plantation school. Did you hear that? Hmm. Context of white supremacy. Uh, so we'll be back next week. We are almost getting close to being done. Still quite a bit of ways to go. We're in Chapter 7. Uh, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Do not wait till the last moment if you have commentary. Uh, really quick, I'll get in some of our investors' notes on Chapter 7. Uh, number one, Orangeburg celebrating the annual Grand American Coon Hunt. The 57th annual took place in – are you serious? Are you serious? Are you serious? The Grand American Coon Hunt, so the 57th annual Coon Hunt took place in January 2022. One of the tracking dogs taking part in the final four competition was named Gin and Juice, spelled G-I-N, in Juice. Gin and Juice is owned by William Cochran and Ryan Eady of Georgia. Thousands turned out in Orangeburg, South Carolina for the festivities. We still got the Rona and they said thousands turned out. I'm wounded, brother. I'm white flag <laughs> so I can't even I can't even proceed we got the coon hunt in Georgia in the middle of the Rona and thousands turned out for the great coon hunt that they've done for 57 years I'm done Whew, what does it mean to be white Jesus Christ uh, da -da -da -da, long oh and he gets I can't believe it I can't believe it number two Black was all the rage in 1949 and 1950 in the Northeast. He said, you've got to be kidding me. This is not <laughs> I'm still wounded over gin and juice at the coon hunt. Uh, but, yeah, that's noteworthy, too, where they were saying uh, Nat King Cole and Pinky and all the other things, black entertainment. Number three, Olin Johnson, the incumbent senator. As governor, he declined clemency to – oh, no, no, no. As governor, he denied clemency to George Stenny, the 14-year-old black child who was wrongfully sentenced to execution in the electric chair in 1944. <sighs> He's on the cover of uh, Dr. Curry's The Man Not – Mm, mm, mm. Disgraceful. Number four, Strom Thurmond, uh, Julius's picture. He looks a little Spanish. 
He's half Indian. Old Strom was very observant when it comes to racial classification. Essie May seems proud of the fact that Julius wasn't one of those full blacks like herself. Uh, victims, color consciousness, man. Number five. Uh, homosexuality, the love that dare not speak its name, some strong feeling was definitely there. It was segregated love. The convoluted thinking in this passage is astounding. Bold face print. The Freudian slip equating anti-sexual behavior with the segregated love, rape of her mother by old Strom. That is an important point. Uh, number six, Governor Coleman Blees, uh, described as the heir to Ben Tillman's political legacy, this terrorist was so horrible that it is hard to summarize. For example, he publicly advocated for the lynching of black people. Apparently, lots of people do that in South Carolina over many, 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 many generations. Uh, let's see. Number seven. Miraculously, he kissed me on the cheek. This is just sickening. Uh, number eight. Julius starting his law practice proved more difficult than he had imagined. His frustration must have been immense after working so hard. Believe it. Black male college graduates working at the post office was so common during this era, it seemed like a cliché. See text, there's always work at the post office. African-American postal workers and the fight for jobs, justice, and equality. Published in 2010 by Philip Rubio. Jeez, so embarrassing. Uh, let's see. Savannah, they segregated. Number nine. Savannah, they segregated uh, blacks. Uh, blacks of the plantation school never wanting to push matters. Seems hypocritical on the author's part. <laughs> She's not exactly pushing matters either. Hey, she said that. I've heard her say that in interviews. I'd have to look back to say specific passages. But she said, hey, I was no rabble rouser. I was no Stokely Carmichael. I was no Rosa Parks. Like, that wasn't me. I was, you know, just stay quiet, keep your mouth shut, go along to get along. That's she, I think she would agree with your assessment, assessment a thousand percent, sir. She was not trying to push matters either. And I think even when she did offer that observation, critique, if you will, of the black pupils, I think she even said that, hey, I wasn't trying to push it, but I did at least want to talk about some of these issues, but they didn't even want to do that. But, yeah, that's point well taken, point well taken. Uh, let's see. Uh, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. If you would like to participate, the folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, 2262, uh, retired firefighter, if you all have commentary, proceed. Yes, sir. I'm assuming those raccoons had four legs. <laughs> uh Although raccoons uh, are very, uh, very coordinated with their hands. Matter of fact, they're, they're, they're yeah, they're, they're very good at it uh, because they can, they can use their hands like, like humans. That's one thing that I remember about raccoons when I was with the fire department. Uh, they, there's no garbage can that they cannot get into. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, yes, uh, what was I, what was I thinking to, to report about, uh, uh, talk too long and forgot. <laughs> uh, let me, let me think, give me a few seconds, uh, it'll come to me. Uh, 
Uh, oh, well, yeah, uh, Spike Lee, filmmaker Spike Lee, uh, and his movie that he did in the, uh, that he put out, I think it was in the, in the mid to late 80s or the 90s, uh, he went to a historical black college and uh, Morehouse to be exact, I think, uh, and he depicted a historical black college in a movie. And some of the same characteristics of culture that this lady is talking about still existed at that particular point in time. Now that was after that was in the, the movie itself was after I was already out of college, but uh, it still it still reigns uh, somewhat uh, in historical black colleges that particular culture of of non-white. Black people who are light skinned uh, basically has a uh, a uh, a uh, more quote unquote approval of of things than uh, the darker, uh, heavily melanated uh, non-white black people are. Uh, he depicted that very well in his movie. I forgot the name of the movie. Uh, oh, and the the gangster. In the movie Key Largo, uh, that's I still have it saved on my uh, on the television thing where you save uh, movies. Uh, was Edward G. Robinson the one that you were talking about? And uh, that's it. Uh, it, it. It's it's really all everything that you mentioned the, the book itself, but uh, it does at least carries carries on to where you can have something to say about it and and kind of like get lessons from it. So that's what I, that's the two things that I would give to the book is you get some lessons out of it based on the uh, tragic arrangement behind her uh, uh, origin. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida, amateur coon expert, uh, 2262. Uh, if you had commentary to share, Spike Lee School Days, that was the film. 2262, did you have commentary, yeah. sir? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Um, I want us to first go to page 147, and where Strom Thurmond said, I think the communists are putting these ideas in colored people's heads. Um, I guess that's a, a common thought that black people cannot think for themselves, cannot look at our situation and try to understand it better. I mean, they said that uh, with the, uh, I guess, the elections recently about, I guess, Russian interference and people being bots and whatnot. Um, he's always also surprised how SMA knows certain things. So I guess I just think uh, Strom Thurmond is practicing anti-blackness. He's thinking all black people just, you know, you know, inferior to say the least. Um, yeah, that, that was it if I want to also add to it. But again, uh, interesting read. Uh, thank you for picking this book, Gus, and that'll be it. Jay Russell Hawkins, if he had not practiced racism, we would have been reading a different book, perhaps equally entertaining, entertaining uh, informative, but different book. Uh, much obliged, good sir. Uh, let me see. Let me see if I can get my notes in before we run out of time. Uh, all righty. Chapter 7. 
Wow, so many notes. Chapter seven. Okay, great a minute. I don't. I'm gonna have to do some research on this one. I mean, gee, I have this. There are few books where I have picked out as much like extra information. Jesus, there's so much you can dig on. They have whole documentaries just on Nat King Cole alone. Since he's talking, this is like his heyday when he had a TV show. Since she's saying black was all the rage and Mona Lisa and all that stuff. The name of his documentary is Who's Afraid of the Dark? Nat King Cole at this time when he was a big star, they would put him on television and they wouldn't darken him up. Time Magazine, O.J. Simpson, they went the opposite. They would try to lighten him up. Anybody seen Nat King Cole? I mean, we are talking about a smooth, handsome, black, crystal black, like, wow, good-looking black dude. Nah, too coony. We have to lighten him up. Documentary is Who's Afraid of the Dark? Nat King Cole. Lots you can dig. Pinky is so much you can dig on with this book. The, the Grand American Coon Hunt. Are you serious? And they still have this event? I'm done. Uh, continues. Let's see. Gwendolyn Brooks. We Real Cool. That's the poem she talked about. We Die Soon. Talking about black males. Willie Earl. Uh, the whole culture of black masculinity and the system of white supremacy. Pinky, even some of the things that she's naming as big films that are well-known. My God, that whole movie, Jesus Christ, about a non-white person who's really pale, same type of thing, but she chooses not to pass, similar to Essie Mae. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't even know how you say who is a bigger racist in talking in the system of white supremacy. That just seems crazy. Um, she says she was thankful that in the campaign it didn't come up about Strom Thurmond having a non-white daughter. Um, again, so many white people are doing this rape and all this with the sex thing that I'm not surprised that that wouldn't come up. That would be considered what they call it below the belt type of a thing. Uh, ben Tillman all over again, the uncouthness of white people. She says Strom Thurmond and Johnston almost get into fisticuffs. On the campaign trip, this is like straight Ben Tillman, like 1900s. Oh, you insulted me. We're going to have a duel. And, you know, they get the glove and smack you in the face. Like, are you serious? What a disgrace. Uh, she, her, Strom Thurmond just shows up. I know they don't have, like, text messages and all that back then, but, I mean, he could pick up the phone, telegram, something. He just show. I'm, I'm dropping through. Drop a few dollars, check in. You've been eating fried chicken, all the rest of it. Like, so what if I didn't want to see you? Like, you don't even have the opportunity to be like, oh, we're busy. Can't accept guests right now. Or we don't want to visit right now. How about any of that? It's just, nope, he's just going to hop in, and we just got to accept the visit and don't have any say-so about it at all. Uh, they talked about the, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. She feels sorry for him uh, because he lost the Senate race. Uh, she feels like he's just an old dude who's going to retire. Like, I mean, again, this is her dad, so what can you expect? Um, I, too, said the same thing when he sees Julius, and it's like, oh, he's not totally black. He's a little bit pale, so he's, you know, a little bit more acceptable, colorism all the way, and just racism for strong blackness, anti-blackness. Um, and this is another one. So she has her child. This is Strom Thurmond's grandson. Is it, oh, let me see your child. Let me come hang out. Let me get a picture so I can put him in my wallet and show it off to all my colleagues. Eh. Saddest book I've ever read. He's not handing out cigars for this either, I bet. Uh, I don't know how this education can be her passport when we just heard that so many black people, even her husband, he graduated from law school, but he can't get a job. 
So I don't know how education is going to be your passport, per se, even in 2022, per se, if you mean like getting a white person's degree. The whole homosexual metaphor that she talks about, wow, white supremacy, racism is so confusing. I thought that was a great point by the listener who said her comparing the child rape of her mother to anti-sex, very fitting, Freudian slip type of a thing. Particularly given the time period that she's talking about, uh, the way that so-called anti-sex, homosexual, homosex was frowned on at that time. Uh, and I also thought it was quite a bit of anti-blackness uh, in terms of him thinking that she, or him being surprised that she knows anything. She's in college. Isn't she supposed to be informed by this point? That's why you go to school. Uh, we heard Paul Robeson reference. We read his biography. Remember that one? Dr. Gerald Horn. He was just with us. Uh, and we had more name-calling communists. Black people can't think on their own, all the rest of it. Uh, McCarthyism, we heard about all that in Paul Robeson's biography. Uh, with that, we will be here tomorrow neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, hope the broadcast has been worthy of your time and energy. Sobriety would be best. Heard alcoholic parents in this one. Uh, in addition to being sober, if you're out and about, you're not in conflict with strangers. Uh, you don't know if the person could be armed, white or non-white. You're all about exiting. If they're being rowdy and hostile, exit. You should be thinking this person could be armed and may have an entire armed entourage. Uh, if you're in a vehicle, exit. You're sober, you're buckled up and not on the cell phone, doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all. For tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.